I'm John Bailey, and on this week's episode of Popcorn Junkie, we have our first ever Super Mega Awesome Movie Review Madness! 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 Of 2018. Man, it's been a while since we had one of these. Uh, so, this weekend, we had five new releases in theaters. Uh, we've got the sequel to Pacific Rim, Pacific Rim Uprising... The uh, teen romance slash disease tragedy drama, I don't know what this uh, genre is called, uh, but Midnight Sun, the seven years belated sequel to Nomeo and Juliet, Sherlock Gnomes, the latest from Steven Soderbergh, Unsane, and the the second week in a row of Christploitation Fair, Paul, Apostle of Christ, plus a Netflix and chat about the Bob's Burgers series. So, let's not waste any more time and get started. There are pilots we remember as legends, but they didn't start out that way. They started out like us. This is our time to make a difference. Do you understand? Jaeger pilots, do you understand? One way to find out. That's what I'm talking about! If you're a bit new to the show, like if this is your first episode or anything like that, uh, or in case you forgot, Pacific Rim is one of my all-time favorite movies. Uh, it it hits right home with all of my love for the old kaiju movies, you know, all the Godzilla knockoffs. Like, even bad kaiju movies I'm willing to give a shot because I just love the genre so much. So when I saw that they were doing a sequel... I was all excited because I thought, oh, hey, they, it looks like they're fixing up most of my issues. You can see the fight scenes. They're expanding more. So you've got Jaeger on Jaeger fights. John Boyega's a way better uh, leading man than Charlie Hunnam. This should be fu- This should be good. And it was, for the most part. Uh, I'll get into that. So, yeah, I had some high, high hopes going in. But looking into it, I can see why we got what we got. First off. While th- this was done while Guillermo was off making uh, Shape of Water, as well as, uh, what was I think he was doing Crimson Peak as well. So, I mean, like, he was doing his own things while uh, they were working on this. And so they gave it to Stephen S. DeKnight, who you might know as the creator of Stars' Spartacus series. You know, Spartacus, Spartacus Blood and Sand. That's who they gave this movie to. A guy whose only experience is creating and directing and producing television. Like, even the best television he's done, he he helped produce on the Netflix Daredevil series. Even that, even going with that, he's still a TV guy. So they, instead of handing this off to uh, a feature film guy, somebody with experience, maybe the... um, I guess they would have been making this alongside Kong Skull Island, or maybe not. They could have got, but they could have gotten somebody, somebody with experience directing 
big budget movies to handle this. Instead, they went with a TV guy, and the script was written by a TV writer, a short film writer, and the guy who wrote, who adapted the Maze Runner series. That, along with Stephen DeKnight. So we've got TV people, a short film maker, and the guy who helped write the Maze Runner, who helped adapt the Maze Runner franchise. Is it any wonder that this couldn't compare to Guillermo del Toro? You've basically gone from a, it's the, a cinematic experience to a made-for-TV movie, essentially. You know, it's basically like jumping from Stanley Kubrick to um, uh, Dick Wolf. You know, it's basically like saying, hey, Dick Wolf makes some good material. He can do this. He can adapt this movie. Uh, so, yeah, sadly... It's just not quite the same, and it, and it shows in the final product, but uh, I do want to lead off on a good note, so we'll start with the good. Like I said, John Boyega is a better lead actor than Charlie Hunnam. He, him carrying this movie it makes it way better. Uh, even Scott Eastwood as kind of the, uh, uh, what's, what's the term, uh, you know, the kind of hard-nosed, straight-edge guy, uh, the co hit, you know, John Boyega's co-pilot for most of the movie. Even he's all right, you know? Like, I could see Scott Eastwood uh, taking up the mantle of Captain America at, you know, as, at some point, you know? He's, he's got that build and look to him. He's fine. Um, I do like the diverse cast. I do like that the cadets feature from across the world. So you've got India, Russia, China, Japan, Korea. There's even some cast members here for, you know, represented who are Hispanic. Uh, I don't know specifically where. I think the love interest is Hispanic, though. But, you know, it's a very diverse cast of characters. Um, we'll get back to them. But I'm glad that they at least had the thought to be like, oh, yeah, let's have a diverse cast of characters instead of just all white folk and then shots of Russia, China, and Australia. Uh, you were able to see the fights. The lighting was much better. They didn't hide the fights so much. Like, the darkest fight you got was of Gypsy Avenger fighting the, uh, fighting the rogue Jaeger in, in Siberia. And that's because it, they're going down a crevasse. And even then, it's only for a few seeds, and then it goes right back out into broad daylight. So I'm glad that they lit the scenes well so you could see the fights as they happen. And they're not too bad of fights, either. But, like I said, by giving this to TV people, you've immediately dropped in epicness. You know, anytime you hand over filmmaking duties to people whose only experience is in television, I'm sorry, unless that television is of an epic scale like maybe a Game of Thrones or a Breaking Bad. I, those are kind of people who are showrunners I could see making a cinematic, great, you know, something worthy of showing in cinema. This, even the fight scenes all kind of rang as less epic. The dialogue definitely was not as as bombastic and over the top as the first one. And yeah, it's just the you know the the even the uh, storyline felt very TV grade. Like as much as I like this could the storyline could have worked. But they needed people who are more experienced in writing for cinema, not for television. This is my issue with the My Little Pony movie as well. I liked the movie. Great animation. Great voice cast. Solid movie. 
but because it was written by TV writers, it feels like a watching an extended TV episode. There's a distinct difference between writing for film and writing for television. And if you can't differentiate between the two, you'll end up with a movie that feels like you should be watching it at home on TV. And that's kind of where this movie suffers the most. And, that, and I wish that uh, Legendary and I think Universal uh, got behind it. I wish they would just have paid for people who are experienced screenwriters. You know, they're not just, and they don't have to be like the you know high quality screenwriters either. You know, you don't have to go for like Lord and Miller or an Aaron Sorkin style like big, like recognizable named screenwriter. Just getting some of the guys from the 2014 Godzilla or Kong Skull Island. Or um, the last Pacific Rim movie, you know? Getting people who are familiar with this genre. Get some people who worked over on Marvel. Or, you know, maybe not DC because they're not as great movies. But, you know, get some people who have experience writing for this kind of big budget, you know, blockbuster cinema. You know, not TV writers. TV writers just can't tack it unless they have that same experience, you know? So... Uh, I will also, you know, it also doesn't help that, uh, the villain of the movie is, you know, is revealed finally about halfway through and then just completely disappears for the rest of the movie. I won't spoil who, uh, who the villain is, but it's a nice twist. I did like that twist that they went with, uh, and it makes sense within the universe, but the villain just outright disappears for the second half of the movie. And then it like only appears in cutaway scenes during the climax I feel like if you wanted to have this big bad villain, they would be more prominent, you know? Like, how could you just write out the villain of the movie? You know, it's the villain, you know? And, um, I will, you know, it also suffers from sequel baiting as well. That, that doesn't help. That never helps. Like, I get it. You're, you're baiting a sequel, but how, sequel baiting, unless there's already a, 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 a second movie coming, guaranteed. If you aren't guaranteed a follow-up film, you do not bait a sequel. And on top of that, if you're if the if the storyline doesn't automatically carry over into the next movie, don't bait the sequel. Harry Potter part Harry Potter and Deathly House Part One worked for baiting into Part Two because you knew there was going to be a Part Two. But each of the individual Harry Potter movies. Were in the uh, in and of themselves self-contained. They didn't need to bait sequel bait for ooh, guess what's coming next time because you knew there was going to be a next time because they didn't need to sequel bait you. They could just tell the damn story. That's how sequels are supposed to work. You don't be like, hey, look what we're going to do next time. You know, it's like a preview of the next episode of a TV series, which is where I think it comes from. Uh. There's also, like I said, the issue with the cadets, which are a diverse cast. I love that it's a diverse cast. We just know nothing about them. The main uh, cadet we learn about is the one that John Boyega meets who pilots that little junk Jaeger that uh, she made. And yeah, just if you wanted to introduce this diverse cast... Do something with them. Like, this movie was under two hours long. I could have... I could have handled an extra... Like, how long was the first one? How long was that first movie? 
Two hours and 12 minutes. You could have made it the same length and developed these characters more, cut away on some scenes, and develop more about these characters, who they are, where they come from, do some scenes with them out, you know, away from the cadet. Or, you know, do some more... Like, the reason we got to learn about Mako Mori in the last movie was because we developed her as a character. And that's what we needed to do with these other cadets, but they decided not to. And then, like, there's a point during the climax where it's like, oh my god, can you believe... Leave what happens, and it's like, well, who cares? We didn't know anything about that person. Like, why does it matter? So, yeah, I mean, even here, the Hollywood Reporter uh, uh, kind of says it all in their headline for the review: uh, "Pacific Rim Two misses Guillermo del Toro's touch." And yeah, he had a he had a style about him. He had a you know he had energy, and to take that away misses what made that first movie so good. But that's not to say that this movie's bad either. You know? It's just... I also don't like the fact that the theme didn't come in until towards the end. There's, like, one montage featuring the theme, which is an amazing scene, theme by Tom Morello. And it only comes in during a montage leading up to the climax and then in the end credits. That's all we hear of it. Like, this should be... This should be, like, the freaking Star Wars themes. They should be played throughout the movie, you know? During all the big epic fight scenes, we should be hearing this theme. Why aren't we hearing this theme, guys? Really? Is it, this isn't that hard. This isn't that hard. All you had to do was make something just like the last movie, and you couldn't. Uh, so, yeah. Overall, I enjoyed myself, but I was hoping for more. And uh, But I'm happy for what I got. I also will say I want my Pacific Rim TV series. I don't care if it's set with the Gen 3 Jaegers before the first movie or it's set with what the sequel leads up is leading up to. I want either an anime, an animated TV, some kind of animated TV series, or even a full-on live action with, mixed with CGI. I want my Pacific Rim TV series. I need that in my life. It's universal. Give this to me. I don't know. You know, they can't all be winners. I am not comfortable with him not knowing. I'm going to. I just need a little longer of being someone more than just a disease. This isn't something you can just not tell me. I'm so sorry. But we're not the couple who doesn't try. The biggest problem with depicting uh, disease on film is most actors are unwilling to uh, go through the go through what it takes to physically depict the debilitations of that disease, to depict the ugliness of that disease, unless it's unless it's something Oscar Beatty, and they're and it's all about the fact that they're like it. Like, especially in this movie, we're dealing with a very rare genetic condition known as zero, zero derma pigmentosum. And when you look at it, you see 
uh, very malignant, dry skin in the patients. And it's very, you can tell that something's very wrong. And unfortunately, there isn't a whole lot you can do to help because it's a genetic issue. And so in this movie, none of that is depicted. None of that is depicted because we can't depict Bella Thorne as uh, anything but beautiful, sadly. And I don't think that's... I, I doubt that that's her demanding that. I hope it's not. I genuinely hope it's not her and her uh, team being like, well, we can't depict Bella Thorne as ugly. Then people won't like her. I hope it's not that. I hope it's just a matter of, well, we don't... I hope it's, a, I hope it's just a matter of the producers being assholes, being like, well, we can't... I hope it's the producers making that decision, not the actress demanding that condition. Uh, but anyway, I was expecting worse from this movie and actually got better than what I expected. It's more in line with uh, The Fault in Our Stars. Uh, I was expecting something like Everything, Everything or Every Day where it's very much up its own ass with how deep it thinks it is. But it ultimately is just a standard love story. Here, it it, it doesn't fall. It has It has some of those trappings. But at the same time, when it ma- when it comes to a head, when it comes to the real drama and the tragedy, I, it goes. It doesn't go for full Fault in Our Stars. It more goes for Nicholas Sparks, and I don't know who wrote the book, but uh, here we go. Midnight Sun. Who wrote the book for this? Oh no, it's based on a Japanese film. No, it's based on a, it's. Yeah, based on the Japanese film of the same name. Okay, so this is an adaptation from Japan. Huh. I may have to check this out on Majide. Skin condition, zero derma pigmentosum. Makes ultraviolet radiation of sunlight potentially lethal. And she want, and she's a singer and guitarist, and she falls in love with a local boy. And it's, and it's through her, and through that local boy that uh, she starts to feel... Um, Alive again. So, we'll have to see how the Japanese version does it. I wonder if... Uh, and it's also called... It's more known as Song to the Sun. Uh, Tayo no Uta. And uh, only over here is it known as Midnight Sun. So, I'll have to look into that. Uh, maybe check Kishation to see if it's uh, on there. But, yeah. the This version... Yeah, it, it suffers a lot from... To me, yeah, it's all pretty people, you know. I feel like I feel like the one thing uh, Love Simon had over this is that even though there are, you know, the mains are attractive, they're ne- they're more conventionally, attra- they're more like a, um, you know, kid next door attractive, not full on like model attractive. Whereas these the people focused on here are definitely like movie star attractive. These are genuinely attractive people, and I feel like that kind of. Uh, kind of ultimately suffers the most is because, because, you know, God forbid people who look normal uh, have their, have some kind of love story for them. And now it's gotta be the pretty, you know, we gotta focus on the pretty people because that's all people want to watch. Uh, it's, I don't know. It's just my issue with this, especially, and it's definitely if for younger audience, you know, when it comes to younger audiences that become, cause like, Older romance romances for older audiences will allow for more leeway with the with the uh, 
with the leads in that they'll also allow, you know, they'll allow for, you know, you know, more men and women of different shapes and sizes to be, we're about to see a rom-com with Amy Schumer and, uh, Bert, is it Bert Kreischer? I think that's his name. I think that's who's in I Feel Pretty. Let me see. Uh, he's a, he's a, he's a stick. No, it's a Rory Scovel. And they're not attractive people. They're just average looking people. You can get away with that in an adult film, not an adult film, but a more mature for adult audiences film. But for some reason, when it's teenagers, they all got to look purty. They all got to look purty, girls. Teenagers won't watch it. And I don't get that. And I, I really, I think it's just a matter of they, they, they built up this idea of pretty people sell more to teenagers. When I think teenagers are just like, no, I want, no, I just want to see some teenagers. I don't know. I I haven't been I've never been one of those teenagers. Maybe that is a thing with teenagers. They just want to see good-looking people, men, women, whatever. But um, yeah, I don't know. I I would hope I I would hope that that would be on the downside. I I down I feel like I feel like that should be that should be on its way out. I feel like teenagers nowadays would probably be like, no, we want some more representation. We don't care if the leads are attractive. We just want more representation in the media. I don't know. But, um, so yeah, uh, yeah, comparatively, compared to the actual uh, condition xeroderma pigmentosum, this is, this is, this is a pretty version of that because if you have the actual condition, you get hard, scaly, almost like, um, eczema types and you get like open sores he in the movie it's more like oh no you get looks like you get a couple of bruises and then you get diagnosed with cancer oh no and then she gets all frail and sickly looking and that's that's the drama of the movies that's what happens to her not you know getting some suffering from some of the real issues of zero it this is a hollywoodized version of this condition because because God forbid they actually depict it accurately. You know, it's like saying, "Oh no, I've got acne and eczema," and uh, it's like, oh, and it's only like a couple of red spots. It's not the full on like actual condition because, God forbid, we let people look ugly on camera. Uh, yeah. So, I will say that what made this movie watchable was its leads, Bella Thorne, despite you know having to be pretty the whole time is uh is is genuinely good is, is, is she I never knew she could sing she has a decent like folksy singing voice uh I would I'd be interested to see if she can even do like musical style like Broadway number stuff maybe cast her in a uh, movie musical at some point I could I you know I, I could see her in that and after this um but uh, even aside from that like she's great at the sort of awkward not used to human interaction sort of uh dip, you know she's good at that and she that's some of the where the good the humor comes from this movie is her awkwardness and her inability to interact with people especially uh, early on with uh Patrick Schwarzenegger who you can you can if you've seen young Schwarzenegger like bodybuilder uh Mr. Universe Schwarzenegger you can see where Patrick gets his looks he looks his face definitely looks like his dad's old face used to look, you know, back when he was young. But the only thing, the, the only thing he doesn't have is the big burly muscles, and I think that's fine. Like he's perfectly svelte and you know muscular because he's a swimmer, and that and so he's not like 
schlubby or anything, but he's not overly muscular. And he's also pretty decent. Uh, as far as, like, lead, these leading actors go, I like him more than, say, like, Alex, Alex Pettifer or, um, or, like, some of the guys in these other... Like, who was the guy in freaking Everything Everything? Um... Yeah, he wasn't, uh, I don't need the full movie. Uh, trying to, uh, Nick Robinson. Uh, not familiar. Wait, he was, wait, the kid who was Simon and loved Simon was the lead, was the love interest in Everything Everything? Or no, what? Yeah! Holy cow! Holy cow, what a difference it makes. What a difference a good movie can, what a difference good writing can make for a movie. He's also the love interest in freaking The Fifth Wave, too. So, he's really turned himself around. Um, apparently, he was also the older brother in Jurassic World. So, huh. I'll be darned. He's really... Love, Simon really showcased what he can do when he's got a good writing, when he's got good writing behind him. Uh, but, yeah. Patrick Schwarzenegger, as, 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 uh, you know, as all things go... It, he is actually pretty. You know, he's actually pretty good, and um, he's got this great baritone voice that I loved hearing him talk. And you know, he has. It, you know, it's kind of like if his dad lost the accent, that kind of low baritone. And um, and I think I could see I could see him as a superhero too. I don't know who would they would cast him as, but I could see him as sort of that more. You know, more action hero-y kind of guy as well. You know, he, he he could go either way. Uh, but I like I you know as far as nepotism goes, I've seen work. You know, you could do worse. You know, sometimes I wait. Who's isn't Bella Thorne the daughter of two people? Uh, well, duh, she's the daughter of two people. But isn't she the daughter of two two famous people? Um, no, born in Pembroke Pines in Florida. Uh, nah. No, no, nobody specific. Um, apparently, she was on Big Loves, but I'm only recently getting to know her based on. Um, I didn't see the Babysitter. Uh, oh God, she was in Boo and Medea Halloween. She has a voice in Ratchet and Clank, Shovel Buddies, Alvin and the Chipmunks, The Road Chip, The Duff, The Snow Queen Two, The Snow King. Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. Blended. Underdogs. Forget me not. Uh, so, yeah, Midnight Sun is definitely a step up for her. Because she's in... She was in an Amityville horror knock... You know, one, one, uh, sequel recently. Last year, too. Like, last year she had, like, four films. Something called You Get Me. Which I haven't heard of. Don't know anything about. The Babysitter for Netflix. And where um, I think she is the no, that's a uh, Samara we- weaving. She's just one of the cheerleader friends. Uh, Amityville, The Awakening, the latest Amityville sequel, and something called Keep Watching, a horror film directed by Sean Carter, which I don't know anything about. But it also stars Ion Gruffed, uh, former uh, Mister Fantastic, as uh, her dad, and she's the lead girl in it. Uh, so yeah, this is a step up for her compared to the last movie, last couple of big movies she's been in. And, um, uh, yeah, but yeah, and then Patrick Schwarzenegger is solid. I could see him 
and I can see big things for him coming from this. Rob Riggle is good as the dad. Uh, he's very affable. He's very relatable. He, he does dramatic well, so he's good. And then uh, Quinn Shepard, who I wasn't familiar with, but is uh, was in Unaccompanied Minors, uh, the television show Hostages, um, Assassination of a High School President, something, uh, The Blacklist. She was on uh, Believe and Person of Interest. She she played a character on... Uh, this is kind of her first real breakout role, I think, since accompanied, Unaccompanied Minors. And uh, she's basically uh, the next Kat Dennings. Like, Kat Dennings, is, she very much looks like and kind of acts like uh, Kat Dennings did when we first started to meet her and stuff. So I could, eas- like, I could easily see Quinn Shepard playing sisters alongside Kat Dennings. Like, you could easily make that movie. And uh, I hope to see more of her from this. She was solid as, like, the best friend. And um, I think she could do good things, too. It's just, ultimately, this movie is, as much as I praise it, it really, the drama, the main dramatic turn could have easily been avoided and it felt almost forced in order to happen. I don't know how it plays in the Japanese version. I'll have to re- watch that and uh, report back. Um, but I will say, compared to how everything, everything handled its diseased, uh, it's a uh, you know, it's it's a uh, it's it's you know, it's um, its protagonist and their condition. Then this one handled it more maturely and was willing to go further. Whereas even though it didn't go as far as I think it should, but. Um, and yeah, the, 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 I will say, uh, even though it was kind of forced, I did like the, tra- I did, you know, the, the tragic elements are kind of forced ultimately. And I think the, the, the Japanese version may have done it better. We'll see. But the, yeah, the worst scene does have to be the big, like, um, big, like chase. There's a big chase scene in order for her to get home and avoid the sunrise. That's the, there's like a, it's like a big, like, quick, go, 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 gotta hurry, gotta hurry, gotta run. And then it's like, oh my God, did she make it in time? Did she get, did she get too much sunlight? And it's like, wow, this could have just easily been avoided. You're, you're just, all of this could have been avoided if you had just gotten over yourself. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's, um, yeah, overall, it's not as bad as other stuff in this genre, but it's definitely too incompetent where it counts. It's a middling movie elevated by its better, it's you know better than average cast. So yeah, if it wasn't for the cast in this movie, this could have easily been just as bad as the other ones. But because of that, I, it's like I'll give it a solid like three out of five, you know. And uh, you know, like if you want to check this out, go, go ahead. But uh, yeah, it's there's plenty of better stuff in this genre out there. I'm sure. We have to go undercover. Let's go. Move forward. Hold. Ooh, I said hold. Forgive me, I've never been the back end of a squirrel before. Shh, we've been spotted. <laughs> Sherlock knows. That's not how a squirrel shakes its behind. Mankini, can you demonstrate? You see what I'm doing? Do you see? Yes, you're acting like a rear end. So, uh, this is going to be a double review because I never saw the first uh, Nomeo and Juliet uh, the first movie in this series either which I don't know what you would call this like is it the Nomeo and Juliet series is it the 
um, gnome literature series. Like, what what would you call this franchise? But um, I went back and watched that, and it was pretty bad. It was not very good. Um, it, you know, it, 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 I mean, not so much in that it differed from the source material, because, like, the source material isn't the best thing Shakespeare wrote either. It's very much overplayed. But even given that, like, the way that they try to play it, where it's like, oh, we're like an irreverent version of, the, of Romeo and Juliet, it's still, it's still pretty bad. Like, I, I say it suffers from, uh, post-DreamWorks syndrome, which is something you see in Illumination and especially from Sony Pictures, which was started by DreamWorks in the form of Shrek. Not so much with, um, uh, kind of with Ants, not so much with Prince of Egypt. Prince of Egypt is probably the least DreamWorks-y, but, uh, yeah, the, the, uh, DreamWorks syndrome, or, like, the post-DreamWorks syndrome, whatever you want to call it, uh, I think we'll go with, uh, Dream stuff, uh, DreamWorks syndrome. It, uh, Lindsay Ellis and her friend Nella commented on it back when she was the nostalgia chick. The uh, eyebrow thing with uh, DreamWorks. Uh, they, they go further back into it and how how it's it's like an it's a it's an answer to Disney's wholesomeness is that eyebrow thing where, where and you got that from the Warner Brothers and then it, later on when the Warner Brothers cartoon started to piddle out. Then it led into DreamWorks, and DreamWorks did the eyebrows and was successful at it. When Disney wasn't doing as successfully, they started to lift from that a bit until they could get more, until they could get back on their feet. And yeah, the DreamWorks syndrome also picked up, was also picked up by the other major animation studios out there. You see that in Sony Pictures animation uh, films. You see that in Illumination especially. Illumination has become the new DreamWorks and I, it goes with that saying that the, the, the guy was recently picked up by NBC Universal to run DreamWorks Animation recently. And uh, the main thing that comes with DreamWorks Syndrome is of an over-reliance on pop culture references. You saw that in Shrek. You saw that in Ants. You see that in uh, Shark Tale as well. The worst of DreamWorks movies will do this, and then all the DreamWorks knockoff movies, the things coming from Sony and Illumination, will also do this. Uh, it shows an adult jokes and references, despite it being a kid's movie, so, like, this movie in particular, Nomeo and Juliet, had a reference to American Beauty, where a guy is leering after, a middle-aged man is leering after a teenage girl. So yeah, make references to that in your kid's movie. <laughs> uh, pedophilia, or pederasty, whatever you want to, however you want to call it, just Great thing for the kids to see. And then, of course, uh, Snark Over Substance, where where that eyebrow takes precedence over the actual story. And that was the biggest issue with Nomeo and Juliet, is they they thought they could be smart and clever, but never actually did anything, really. Like, in telling this new version of Romeo and Juliet. They ultimately just had a middling, meandering kids movie. Nothing all that special. Um, it barely resembles the source material, just by constantly referencing it, as well as other Shakespeare stuff. Like, uh, they also referenced Hamlet. Uh, I think either the Sweet Prince line or something something from Hamlet was referenced in there. They're, you know, they're Stratford upon Avon and all kinds. The guy talks to William Shakespeare and the William Shakespeare statue says, that sounds like one of the plays I wrote. It has a tragic ending. Well, we're going to have a happy ending. Yeah, that's what this movie is. Although it did make me want to see Patrick Stewart as a live action Shakespeare. It also raises the question, 
do Brits even like the gnomes? Like, Paddington I get. Paddington feels very British. And it's a genuinely good movie, even if it's not for me. These gnomes, like... Can they, like, if you're from Britain, I know I have a listener in Ireland. And... If you're from Britain, or you're from Europe, and you have more familiarity with garden gnomes as a staple of suburban life, do you care? Like, is do you need, like, I know David the Gnome was big back in the 80s, but I think that was just because it was a good series. Does at making things about gnomes really add anything? Like, does it matter that we're dealing with gnomes? Because I genuinely don't get it because gnomes were never a big thing around me growing up here in Ohio. So, if you're more familiar with gnomes, does this... Do anything for you? Like, do you like that it's about gnomes? Does it matter that it's about gnomes? Like, does it, d- does it really matter? I don't know. That's that's my issue with it. So yeah, I did not care for Gnomeo and Juliet. So when it comes to this belated sequel, there was some minor improvements. It's not great, but it improved on the biggest way possible. It got out from that DreamWorks syndrome uh, for the most part. There are, I think, it does still reference Sherlock Holmes, and Holmes, you know, does make, like, there's a Hound of the Baskervilles reference, there's, um, there's a reference to the one where he fights Moriarty, and, uh, I forget what it's called, the la- it was, like, the one where he died, and, uh, yeah, once again, Moriarty is a character, here he's a rubber pie mascot, it's really stupid, I, I did not like how they depicted Moriarty in this, and, um, there's less of her, li- like, the last movie was shut, was filled to the brim with Elton John music. And it completely took you out of the movie. Here, it's barely there at all. And I feel like people, they were seeing how people were reacting to the trailers. And because most of the stuff in the trailers, like the farting in the puddle and some of the, the, the thing with the gnomes hat being broken and was saying, what the fertilizer? Because that's a, you know, what's, that's another thing that kids movies do that I hate is sub they did it in the first movie where they say let's kick some grass and it's like just if you're not gonna curse don't use a pun to hide your cursing you're not edgy you're the kind of edgy that those kind of uh dare programs used to do with kids where they were like hey kid you like um if you've seen the south park episode about smoke saying no to smoking those the at the very beginning with the uh with the with the Kids with the adults dressed up like they're supposed to be kids. Be like, just don't smoke, Ward. And it's like, yeah, your adults try to come off as hip and with it. You know, you you come off more like Steve Buscemi in 30 Rock. How's it going, fellow students? <laughs> uh, but yeah, there were some minor improvements. But yeah, it's still not very good storytelling. It's, for a Sherlock Holmes mystery story, it's... They did not take any... There's like a reference to um, Irene Sadler, I think is her name. Who's the Shakespeare woman, Irene? Shakespeare... No, no, not Shakespeare. Sherlock Holmes. Irene... Irene Adler. I was close. I I added an S for some reason. So there's a reference to Irene Adler... Played by Mary J. Blige. And who and in here, Irene Adler... Though they don't name drop the Adler, it's just Irene... In this movie, Irene is a kind of Barbie doll sort of thing. And uh, Mary J. Blige does all right. Like, you really, like, you see that and you're like, Mary J. Blige? What's Mary J. Blige doing in here? 
I mean, no complaints, but how did they get Mary J. Blige? What's she doing here? That's a post-Oscar follow-up after doing Mudbound, singing and singing and voicing in Sherlock Gnomes. It's not weird. I'll say this: it's nowhere near as bad as Norbit. The Norbit drop-off from Dreamgirls for Eddie Murphy, that was rough. And I think uh, Taxi for Queen Latifah after being nominated for Chicago, and I think winning for Chicago, yeah, that was a rough drop-off. This one is not so bad. That being said, it's also not, like, great, because also she's not in the movie enough for it to be like, she's not the star of the movie. So it's not like her starring in a movie that sucks. It's, It's just her in the movie. And, um, yeah, like, but yeah, the mystery for the movie is, like, children could figure this out. This isn't new. You'd have to be, like, little, little, haven't seen any movies to not figure this out. You could, if you've seen a movie, especially a mystery, if you've read books, especially the Sherlock Holmes books, you will see this and you'll be like, I know where I already know where this is going. You mean we got 90 minutes of this crap? I already know where it's going. Just get there. So, yeah. And uh, <laughs> I think what sucks the most is both because of this, it's, it's featuring Johnny Depp as Sherlock Gnomes and, and because he's in the title now. Gnomeo and Juliet have become superfluous in their own sequel. Like you could literally cut them out of this movie and you wouldn't miss anything. There's no reason for them to be in here other than the tie back to that first movie. There's no reason for, to have Romeo and Juliet in this movie. They are so superfluous to the actual plot. It is, it is, it is, it is mind-boggling how, just how little they matter in this movie. <laughs> Way to go. Hey, we're giving you a sequel. Yeah, you're not in it, though. Can you, you're playing second fiddle to our new guest celebrity star. So, have fun with that. Especially since James McAvoy and Emily Blunt are like big, leaning names. Emily Blunt's going to be in a movie next week, two weeks from now. In, a, in like this majorly anticipated movie, the quiet, A Quiet Place. So, I mean, she's going to be freaking Mary Poppins. And she has to play second fiddle to, you know, good old spouse beater Johnny Depp. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Keep, keep casting him and stuff. God. Yeah. I'm not a fan of Johnny Depp, uh, you know, but not if it, and it's not just the personal stuff either. Because I mean, the personal stuff, I'd hate him regardless. But he also continually makes garbage in his, you know, he makes garbage movies and he gives garbage performances. I haven't seen. When was the last time I saw a good Johnny Depp performance? Let's find out. What's his? What's his? Um, him and his freaking fake ass British accent. Um, come on. I, like, people say he was good in uh, Midnight on the Orient Express, but I honestly didn't think he was that great. Like, it's just him repeating Black Mass. Uh, let's see. Uh, Sherlock Gnomes, Murder on the Orient Express. Yeah, just not. Uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Him. He was barely in that. Alistair the Looking Glass. I did not see the Art of the Deal movie that he did for Funny or Die. Yoga Hosers. I've heard nothing but bad things. I guess Black Mass? 2015? Or kind of the wolf in Into the Woods, although he's not that great? Tusk, Transcendence. 
Mordecai, something called Lucky Them, the Lone Ranger, like Dark Shadows, an uncredited cameo in 21 Jump Street, an uncredited cameo in Jack and Jill. Didn't see the Rum Diary. I guess his last really good performance was Rango. Like, I wouldn't say his performance in Black Mass was that great. Like, he was he was good. But, I, like, his his last great performance for me was in was in, was in Rango. And I guess before that, Corpse Bride. So it's been pr- almost a decade since Depp has given, like, a stellar, like, amazing performance. Otherwise, he's either just a cameo or he's doing his same shtick. What the hell is this? A labyrinth. The murders of Tupac and Notorious B.G. spark an investigation. Johnny Depp is starring in a movie about the murders of Tupac and Biggie? The hell? It's called L.A.Barinth. Like, specifically L.A. capitalized Barinth. So, weird. Yeah, Invisible Man's not happening. And something called London Fields was announced. And then Richard says goodbye. College professor loses his life with reckless abandoned after being diagnosed with terminal illness. Eh. So yeah, like... Yeah, I don't get the need for Johnny Depp anymore. There are better actors out there. I don't know why people... Like, I don't think he sells movies anymore. Maybe overseas, where people aren't sick of him. But yeah, over here, I don't get why you would want him around. He doesn't really give that good of performance anymore. So, why... why, So, not only... It's like the Chris Brown thing. He's not all that good anyway at his job... And he's also a terrible person, so why are we keeping him around, you know? I mean, you could make an argument for Kevin Spacey being a good actor, so... But it, it just... What he's done means he's on... He's on work... You know, you can't work with him anymore because he's... He is... He, he, why would you want him around? Because he's just a terrible person. But... Or like the Michael Jackson thing, where he was an amazing singer. And even during uh, This Is It, the lead-up to his concert tour uh his last one before he died you saw you saw the the talent still there even when he was like 50 something years old if not straight up 50 and yet yeah and if that was true if what if what happened did happen yeah he's a terrible person nobody should associate with him but it's hard to avoid his mark on the world and and you know it would be a va- like if we didn't have Michael, it would be a vastly different music scape. Uh, Todd was talking about this, Todd in the Shadows, in uh, one of his Chris Brown episodes, which is what, what makes me think of it. But like, Johnny Depp, like maybe his past work still, it still holds up for the most part. I think maybe his Edward Scissorhands and his Ed Wood still hold up. At post Pirates of the Caribbean trilogy, Lone Ranger Johnny Depp, Mordecai Johnny Depp, Yoga Hosers and Tusk Johnny Depp, Pirates 4 and 5 Johnny Depp. Do we really, like, is is him being okay in Murder on the Orient Express and Black Mass really worth keeping around a mediocre actor? Like, he obviously doesn't care, so why why keep casting him and stuff if he's not going to give a damn? Like, even here, you could easily recast Sherlock Holmes, Sherlock Gnomes, as anybody else. Like, you could literally cast any other British actor. You know, you could have Benedict Cumberbatch reprise his role as Sherlock Holmes in this. You know, it'd be a nice throwback. Or you could have somebody do, um, oh, God, who was the, 
old Sherlock Holmes. Uh, the really old one. Um, let me see. Sherlock Holmes. Uh, we want the 70s. What's this 54? No, it's a 54 TV series. We want the 70s movies. Who was that? It's gonna bug. It's gonna bug me if I find it. Um, ah, who was it? Was it a TV series? No, apparently. Um, apparently, apparently, Leonard Nimoy did a thing on In Search of Sherlock Holmes. Not sure what that's about. Um, come on. Who was the guy? Uh, Basil Rathbone. It came to me. I knew it was going to come to me at some point. You could have somebody do a Basil Rathbone impression. Like, uh, like, um, like the guy who played, uh, um, the great mouse detective. Uh, Basil of Baker Street. Damn it, that's why he's called Basil. Damn it, I just got that. That shows how much I pay attention. No, but you could have a British act. Get it like Eddie Redmayne. Uh, although he was, I mean, he's filming voices. He could do a Sherlock Holmes, or who's an older British actor? Um, you got Chuy Delegia for as Watson. You could get like an Idris Elba as Sherlock Holmes. That'd be fun. Have Idris Elba and Chuy Delegia for as Holmes and Watson. Actually, now that I think about that, I would absolutely watch a Holmes and Watson series with Elba and Edgia for. Somebody make that happen. Uh, yeah, there are plenty of British actors out there you could get. Why get a, a British, why get an American doing a fake-ass British accent to be Sherlock Holmes if all, all if the only reason he's there is because he's fading star appeal? That's, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't get it. I genuinely don't get it. So, yeah, um, overall, both movies are inoffensive, but seriously, your kids deserve better, don't they? Yeah, yeah, they do. Anyway, we're going to take a quick break and come back with the rest of the reviews after this. Into every generation, a slayer is born. One girl in all the world. A chosen one. And alongside her are the Watchers. We are the Watchers. Once more with Feeling is a 20th anniversary Buffy fancast where we gather and watch episodes of Buffy, discuss them, and release it every Tuesday. Grr. Arg. It's all in my head. 
one of those guys I feel like I love, though I haven't seen too much of their work as a director. Like, I haven't seen most of Kubrick's things, so I can't really say if I love him as a director. I, I still need to see more Spielberg. I still need to see more uh, Jason Reitman stuff. There's a bunch of directors who I feel like there are they're big chunks of their filmography that I've missed uh, that I need to go back to. I think I, I think I'll do. I think I should do a a series of that maybe at some point. Maybe like a side project where it's like revisiting the revisiting directors. It's kind of like a now playing thing. Uh, now playing podcast. We'll do uh, recaps of all their of all these. Uh, We'll do the. They mainly do franchises, but they've also done uh, director uh, retrospectives. Uh, I think maybe doing something like that might be fun. Uh, maybe like a side project of like, oh, for the next so many weeks, I'll be reviewing all of this director's movies, and you can, and there'll be like a segment on the podcast or something. Maybe not that way. It won't have to be a uh, full on series. You know, it could just be its own segment on the podcast. That might be something. You know, and then like save it for a uh, really, really slow days. You know, really slow weekends where like only one or two things came out. Um, but yeah, uh, Soderbergh is back. Uh, not too long. It's only been it's le- it's less than a year since his last movie with uh, uh, Lucky Logan. And here we've got a film shot entirely on iPhone. I don't know if it's the one iPhone. Maybe it's multiple iPhones, but. The camera work is all done on phone, on i on an iPhone, and it tells the story of a woman, um, not illegally, but like completely against her will, in, uh, in, uh, what's the term? Uh, committed to an to this uh, mental health mental hospital, and uh, it's her trying to make it through while also. Suffering from PTSD about a stalk a stalker from uh, when she lived in Boston, which they go into. And my biggest concern going into this was the depiction of mental health and of treatment. And that was you know I had right I had a good reason to be worried because it kind of it kind of relies on old tropes and old depictions and stereotypes of mental health. It. I, it, it, it's not as offensive as I worried it would be, but it's still, you still get that, that there, you know, you still definitely get the ableism that comes with, uh, Claire Foy's character calling the other people crazy. They're psychopaths that, you know, they're the ones unhinged while she's screaming it, which I guess is kind of the irony of it, that she's the one screaming everyone else is crazy and that she doesn't belong there, but... Yeah, it's it's still very much... It, it, there was a reason I was worried, and it kind of detracts from the movie for me. And I, I think it's just a matter of filmmakers need to get a better... Get a better handle of uh, what the subject, that, the subject they want to talk about before they talk about it. And I feel like Soderbergh's one of those guys that usually is good about that, but since he didn't... He, didn't, he only directed this, he didn't write it... That that's more up on the writer. Speaking of which, who did write this? I saw the names and I didn't recognize them. Let's see. Funny enough, uh, one of the 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 uh, stalker characters played by Josh from the Blair Witch Project. Fun fact: he's he's still working, and uh, he's good. He's good as the stalker. Um, oh my god! The writer, the first writer listed for. Uh, 
for Unsane. His other three best-known movies are Jackie Chan's The Spy Next Door, Lindsay Lohan and Chris Pine's Just My Luck, and Larry the Cable Guy, Health Inspector. He's also done Max Keeble's Big Move and some teleplay for a show called for Bill Engvall and Billy Ray Cyrus's Bait Shop. This dude is a trash, trash film, uh, screenwriter, and I have no idea what his name is doing attached to this movie. Second one, James Greer, is also known for The Spy Next Door, Just My Luck, and Larry the Cable Guy Health Inspector. What in God's name are their names doing on this movie? Their names do not belong here. They should not... It's like, imagine if Friedberg and Seltzer, the guys behind all of those really bad parody movies from the mid-aughts, you know, uh, epic movie, date movie, um, not another superhero movie. I think they also did not another teen movie. Uh, Or no, it was just superhero movie. And I think the the last one was... uh, uh, a Fast and the Furious parody, which was awful. But imagine those guys midway after after they made all of that went on to make The Hangover, or went on to make um, Airplane. You know, imagine terrible, terrible screenwriters, people only known for making trash movies. All it's it's like. E.L. James went from writing Twilight fan fiction disguised as BDSM mom porn to writing Shakespeare. Shakespeare quality drama. You know, or uh, or another, what's another, what's another good uh, female? Uh, or went on to write like Anne Rice. Even Anne Rice quality. Or like, uh, who's really good? Like a Something along the lines of a Bron- one of the Bronte sisters, you know? Imagine just somebody only known for trash giving you something decent. That's, that's not... That's, that, 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 no matter what, even if it's, it's not great, at least it's not trash. This is blowing my mind. How the hell did these two numbnuts get their names on this movie of all things. How did these guys get connected with freaking Soderbergh? Hi, vey. Um, well, that threw a monkey wrench in my review because that came out of freaking nowhere. But yeah, um, so yeah, uh, but yeah, basic premise here is Claire Foy, who is best known probably right now as Queen Elizabeth uh, over on Netflix's The Crown, plays a woman who had a stalker in Boston and moves to Pennsylvania to avoid him. And and she still suffers from PTSD. She thinks she sees him places and she goes to talk to somebody at a mental mental health at a hospital and and uh, in and like what's the term? Um unwittingly gets committed to the hospital. And then they reveal what's really going on there through Jay Farrow, who does a great job in this movie. He's, you know, Soderbergh, the great thing about Soderbergh, he's all, he can get great performances out of literally anybody. Like, you wouldn't think Jay Farrow, dramatic powerhouse, but here he is doing a solid job as sort of like the guy on the inside, like the red character from Shawshank Redemption for this mental hospital. And then you've got uh, Josh, Josh, Joshua Leonard, 
who was Josh in the Blair Witch Project movie. And he's I haven't seen him a lot lately. I think he was on um what was the show he was on? Scorpion, something called Startup, Togetherness, Bates Motel he had a recurring role on too. Um If I Stay, apparently he was in. So he's been here and there since uh uh Blair Witch. Apparently he was in Shark Knight 3D. So uh that you know, stick with what you know. Um but yeah, he here he plays the stalker and he he give like you wouldn't think like one of the one of the actors from Blair Witch Project would also be giving like you've got Jay Farrow who's an SNL alum and who's mainly known for comedy and one of the guys from a low budget horror movie that isn't known for its acting, let's say. And here they are in a Soderbergh movie and Soderbergh gets them to give performances on the same level as Claire Foy, who is more familiar with the sort of with, the, with giving these kinds of performances, and it's at, um, and it's great. Um, Juno Temple is also in this. Uh, Juno Temple, for those um, not familiar, is best known for Atonement, uh, Mister Nobody, and Killer Joe. Although uh, I, that can't be what she's best known for. She was on the series Vinyl for HBO. She's um, let me, let me see something I recognize. Apparently she was in that movie Horns. Uh, ooh, she was in Sin City 2. Uh, the Dark Knight Rises as a character named Jen I'm not familiar with. The Queen in the Three Musketeers movie. Um, Mr. Nobody. Yeah, apparently she's... she Her first notes on the scandal and Atonement were where she, um, where she first got recognition. And in Atonement she plays Lola Quincy, who I'm not familiar with. I'm not familiar with Atonement. I only know um, Kira Knightley and James McAvoy and then Sir Sharonin. But, um, yeah, apparently Judo Temple got her big break in that. And here she is completely unrecognizable as, uh, as, um, she was also, like, one of the fairies in Maleficent. But, like, really, you weren't paying much attention to them. You couldn't recognize them by name. Unless you're like really into that Maleficent movie, which woof, yeah, um, you know, good for you. Have fun with that. But um, she she plays one of the uh, patients there, and she is damn near unrecognizable as uh, as the patient. And of course, you've got Amy Irving. Why do I know her from? I know the name. I don't remember what I know her best from. Uh, she was in Trap. Sue Snell, Sue Snell and Carrie. That's it. Uh, she plays. The, um, Claire Foy's mom in the movie and it, it's it's a solid movie like it's not a bad movie uh, the ca- actors all give good performances uh, Amy Irving sadly is not as utilized as I would like her to be because I think she should you know she should have been in the movie more but uh, you know she still gives a good performance for when she's there and the iPhone camera work is solid. Like, it's definitely film quality in some points. But at the other time, you does feel like someone taking a selfie video or, you know, film, you know if someone filming something for Instagram. There are there only so, There's only so much the phone camera can do. But um, Soderbergh puts it through with the ringer. You know, it, it does, it's, he does his best to see if he can make a movie with, with an iPhone. So, and even though it's not, and even though it's not like something anybody, you know, can do and you know not every we're not going to all of a sudden switch to making movies on our iPhones or something but Soderbergh proved that hey you can make a really good movie and and have it be good and it's just filmed on the iPhone 
But uh, yeah, just it all you know. It just ultimately, it suffered from lack. You know, the writing isn't as good. It's definitely not one of Soderbergh's best, and I think that chalks up to the writing. Let's think the script screenwriters, even though this is their best work, you know, it's not going to lead to Soderbergh's best work, sadly. Although Soderbergh does get good performances out of most every, every most everybody, and it's a really taut thriller. So overall. It's not Soderbergh, like I said, it's not Soderbergh's best, but it shows that even by limiting himself to an inferior camera, he can still make a damn good movie. And, you know, it's like, it's like one of those guys that can like, be like, hey, I can do this with my hand tied behind my back, and he does it, you know? It's like, hey, I'm so good, I, don't only, I can only do I can use it using only iPhone cameras. And, yeah, he did. It's, it's good. It's not great. It's not like his best work. I think his best work is still probably, ooh, probably Traffic? Did he do Traffic? Hold on. I saw Amy Irving was in Traffic. I th- that may be... Because he does... There's a bit of a... There's, an, there's a nice cameo to look out for. Yeah, Soderbergh did um, Traffic, uh, the movie. That's where I, I, That's where he kind of met Amy Irving, I guess. And... Um, yeah, and... Uh, <laughs> just... It's, it's, it's... This isn't his best... I don't. I'd have to go through his catalog to see what would be his best. But this is this proves that you know a good director can make a movie with damn near anything. And Soderbergh is proving himself to be has proven himself to be just a damn good director. So I, I I'm really I, once again I may not love this, but I'm always excited to see what he does next. The moment comes, you will have the strength to do what is right. We have people die today. This world doesn't know a thing about love. Where sin abounds, grace abounds more. The Christploitation continues as we head into Easter next weekend. And here we've got... Paul, Apostle of Christ, based solely on the Bible. The Bible being their only source material. And it shows, because it's a meandering slog of a movie. Um, The premise here is uh, based mainly on the Acts of the Apostles, uh, which supposedly Luke wrote. wrote. You know, it's not like there's a name written attached to it. You know, the name on the writings... That were used in the initial uh, manuscript, but they assume it was Luke. And yeah, it's and the funny story. Uh, the actual um, events that are that the actual manuscripts date the earliest they date back twenty years after this movie took place. So let's see, um, who was emperor at that time? Because this movie, this movie takes place in 67 AD, which is during the time of Nero. The emperor after Nero. It would be the emperor after Nero. So, list of Roman emperors. So we want year of the four emperors. So it would be uh, eight. Like 80 AD, 80 BC, 80 CE, which would be under Emperor Titus is when 
the actual uh, writings of Luke are earliest dated back. Although may, they mainly go into either they could either they could easily go into Domitian, Domitian uh, Nerva, and Tra- or even Trajan, Emperor Trajan. Uh, so between Titus and Trajan are where are they, would is who the actual emperor of Rome would be. But uh, they they go all the way back to Nero in 67 AD because that because goddamn uh, historical accuracy we want to tell our story, damn it. Um, so the the premise here is Luke is writing is is trying to help trying to have uh, Paul uh, of Tarsus. Uh, the Apostle Paul, who is best, you know, who, for those who aren't familiar with Christianity, is the Apostle who, I think it was after Jesus' death, Paul of Tarsus. I think it was after Jesus' death. Yeah, he was, uh, let's see. Um, conversion happened. Can be dated from between 31 and 36 CE by the reference in, in in one of his letters so somewhere around the time of Christ's crucifixion he saw a light while traveling he was he was a fervent uh uh i think i don't know if he would be officially orthodox but like he was a, he was a you know he was he was he was a jewish uh i think not not a rabbi he would be in um but he was, you know, a prominent figure in the Jewish community, and he was he spoke of how he hunted down the uh, the uh, the uh, the uh, believers of Christ, thinking they were blasphemers, much like the other uh, prominent Jewish figures at the time. I don't know how much of that is true. Uh, that's just what they depict in the movie, and it's until he sees a light and is blinded in the road. That he that he starts to understand the power of Christ, and then uh, 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 that he that he's not named, but uh, the but the person is Ananias of Damascus came and uh, was commanded by God to give Paul his sight back, and upon his conversion, he went from being Saul to being known as Paul, and uh, he is an older man being held in Roman prison uh, by Nero, who is, who is, um, who is, uh, who is, uh, bl- who has blamed the Christians for the burning of Rome and is holding Paul accountable. I don't know how much of that was, uh, is true. Um, yeah, once again, I had, this isn't going off of uh, this isn't going off of historical accuracy. This is going off of biblical doctrine, and so it's about Paul inspiring the Christians of Rome somehow. And then also, there's that there's because God knows anytime we do one of these movies about the Romans and the Christians, the Romans have to be in awe of, oh, look at how magical the the Christians are. Maybe this Christ thing is on to something. And 
Yeah, God forbid we ever tell a story about this period where a Roman soldier isn't isn't fascinated and converted by the end of the movie. But we got that going on, as well as Luke uh, writing down uh, what would become the Acts of the Apostles, and specifically the history of Paul. In the meantime, there's like a subset of the Christians there in Rome, led by a guy named Cassius, who wants revenge and wants to take up arms against Rome, up against the Ro- against the Roman Empire, for uh, what they've been doing. And everyone else is is like, no, no, that's not what Christ would do. That's not what Christ would do. They had to hammer it home. Violence is not what Christ would do. And Cassius goes ahead with it anyway because he's an asshole. And I think he's he's mainly just a uh, throw in sort of straw man character of like we need to take up violence at arms and it's it's he's only there to be like no he's only be he's only there so that the actual quote unquote actual Christians uh, can be like no that's not how that's not Christ's way his way is through love and like I get what this movie wants to do I get what it's trying to do. And it's, it, it's not a bad thing wanting to talk about the peace and love of Christ and going and having to go all the way back to its freaking infancy in order to do so because God knows you can't do it with today's Christians, am I right? Uh, yeah. Anyway, um, it's, it's just a meandering mess. Like, this movie put me to sleep, was, was almost put me to sleep. It was so boring. Uh, who's the who's the guy behind this? We got Jim. Well, we got Jim Caviezel returning to another Christian movie after playing Christ by playing the uh, playing Luke here, and it's Andrew Hyatt who is the co-writer. Andrew Hyatt is best known for Full of Grace, The Last Light, Miscellaneous Crew on Ghost Rider, and Doomsday. We don't need miscellaneous crew. We need writer-director. What's he... Right? All his stuff has basically been Christian movies. Something He did something called The Frozen, which is a horror movie about a young couple stranded in the woods and must survive without while waiting for help to arrive. And it's got uh, Britt Morgan, uh, Seth David Mitchell, people I've never heard of. Is this a British thing? Uh, language, English. No, it's U.S., also known as Russian. And then everything else besides The Frozen is all Christian movies. Like, that's all he really writes. It, the last three movies he's done are all Christian movies. So I don't know if he was always a, uh, a, 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 a devout believer or if... Oh, he wrote a spec draft of uh, Castlevania while employed at Crystal Sky. So that could have been, been a thing. He could have given us our Castlevania movie. But yeah, he seems to mainly be uh, be known for these Christian movies, and I don't know if that's because that's what he wanted to do, or if it's like a new thing where it's like I have found I have rediscovered my love of Jesus, and I will only make films for him. But like he, nothing that he uh, has made is all that appealing to me. Apparently he was a creative executive on the freaking Tekken movie. So, yeah. Yeah, there we go. And also creative executive on the Bratz movie. So, there you go. Um, here, just... 
It's meandering. It drags on. It's almost two hours long. And you could eat, and there was no reason to drag this movie out. There's nothing in, you could have made this a firm 90 minutes and it would have been just fine. But no, Andrew Hyatt has to go on these weird tangents where he's also making some kind of weird art film of like, oh no, all the blood on Paul's hands and here of all of his victims coming for him and a big mass of people. And it's like, dude, you're not good. Like this may have been compelling by a person who knows what they're doing, but you ain't that, my dude. You ain't that. Um, I'll say this. Compared to the likes of Pure Flix, this comes off as more competent. But when you break it down and compare it to more mainstream film, it definitely is less competent than that. So it's in between. It's more competent than Pure Flix, less competent than, than major mainstream filmmaking. Even like, like Soderbergh was able to make a decent film out of nothing but iPhone cameras. You were able to go to like Malta and and go all over Europe and film in the ruins, and you couldn't do a decent sword and sandals story of Jesus, Christ, early days of Christianity movie? You just had to drag everything along. Everyone's so dull and mellow. And if they're not dull, they're melodramatic. And everyone just is sleepwalking through this, and we're supposed to buy into Jim Caviezel as Luke, but there's no reason to give a damn about him. Like even as, like the only reason we gave a damn about him as Jesus is because he got the got the snot beat out of him. You know, I almost said a, I almost said a naughty word and made this an explicit episode. He got the snot kicked out of him. That's the only reason we cared. That's the only reason he did well as Jesus is because it was wasn't about him being a good Jesus. Like um, was it Willem Dafoe who was in Last Temptation of Christ? Who was in Last Temptation of Christ? I think that was Willem Dafoe as Jesus. Yep, you, Willem Dafoe as Jesus. Um, who else played Jesus? Uh, uh, who, is, who are the other guys who played Jesus? Um, like, heck, the Jesus in History of the World Part 1 is a better Jesus than, G- than Jim Caviezel was. Because Jim Caviezel, all he had to do was say his Aramaic lines and get the crap kicked out of him. And that's all it was, because that's all the passion is. The passion is an is an anti-Jewish hate play that was made by medieval Europeans to be like, hey, look what the Jews, this is what the Jews did to our Lord and Savior. Are we going to tolerate that from them anymore? It, it, it was a, that's the only reason the passion exists as a thing. It's, it's either that or it's like full on, um, uh, ma- like sadism of like look what this man did for your sins look how he suffered oh yeah look at how much our savior suffered for our sins look at the pain he's going through isn't it the worst oh yeah feel that salvation so having him return here as luke it doesn't do anything there's a reason nobody cares about jim caviezel's because he's all second-rate actor like, what does he do besides this? What was that TV show they tried to do with him? Person of Interest or something? What was it? Yeah, Person of Interest? He couldn't carry that. That had that that last that limped over to five seasons. Nobody watched Person of Interest for Jim Caviezel. Now he's now he's returning to Christian films and he's gonna play freaking um Jesus again. Uh just, he is not he is not a good actor. He really isn't. And it's just, and 
having him as like your top billing doesn't mean anything because he's not that like James Faulkner is a better actor than Jim Caviezel in this movie. And I don't even know who James Faulkner is. Apparently he was Lord Cinderby on Downton Abbey, Randall Tarley on Game of Thrones, and then Pope Sixtus on Da Vinci's Demons. And he is just a standard old man as um, as Paul in the movie. So him just being okay is better than Jim Caviezel trying. That's what this movie is. Uh, I think I hit all my major points. Um, yeah, it ranges from dull to melodramatic, even though it's talking about salvation and life and death of these people. It's so dull, and it drags its heels every second. And then when it's not doing that, it's being histrionic and over-the-top and melodramatic. I probably shouldn't use histrionic. It's very... It's a very not only is it archaic, but it's also not. It doesn't exactly have have good. Uh, 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 what's the term? What's the term for it? Um, it's a term for when the back, the uh, background of a word. Um, not good um, et- etymology. Yeah, it doesn't have good etymology in term. You know, it's not a good term for it. But it's so over the top, melodramatic. Like there's there's an awkward scene where um, I think Luke's. Uh, sister-in-law, because I think uh, they have Aquila, some guy who is, I think, Luke's brother, who is in charge of this uh, small Christian community in Rome. And then I think Priscilla is um, Aquila's wife, but she uh, there's a point where uh, one of the one of the like, these little kid characters comes back dead to the community, and she. Gets on bended knee weeping. But before we see that, we don't see her, like, just about to cry. We don't see her in shock. We see her, like, staring blankly at the kid. And then just out of nowhere is like, yeah, just over the top, melodramatic. And then there's, like, a whole point where, um, where, uh, what's his name? Who's the other guy? Who's the big, uh, Roman soldier, you know, convert in this film, uh. Olivier Martinez, who is, before this was in something called Unfaithful with Richard Gere, Taking Lives, the SWAT movie, and something called The Physician. Uh, Previously, he was on the TV show Mars, Texas Rising, and Revenge. He's in Night and Day as an uncredited role. No idea who this guy is. He's supposed to be... The uh, big, you know, he's supposed to be the head of the prison, who's the you know would be convert for this thing, but yeah, doesn't matter. Uh, yeah, and then his wife, uh, their daughter is dying, and so his wife is yelling at him and calling him out, being like, "This is your fault. Our daughter's sick. You're not." Uh, you're not praying to the gods well enough. You're, you've disgraced the gods. And like she you know, pokes and prods at him, pointing fingers, saying he, it's his fault, it's his fault, it's his fault. And then until, up until um, Olivier Martinez, who was just staring blankly into the middle distance this whole damn movie. And then he finally tries, even when he goes to choke her, he, he does it in the dullest way possible. He's like, yeah, I got you now. It's not specifically that, but yeah, it's, it's him... Going in, you know, going into, uh, even going in to choke his wife for, uh, you know, for slandering him and for, you know, chewing him out. He, even then, he can't be bothered to give an emotion. 
So this movie is just just a slog. It was not worth sitting two hours through because you can. There are they're just not ultimately better movies. But even if you wanted to hear something about Christ or something, you know, something very Christian in nature, there's just more interesting stuff to watch. This is. This is genuinely just something you should skip altogether. This may be something they show to put kids to sleep in Sunday school, but if you need a good, uh, if you need something to put you to bed at night, don't worry about Nyquil. Just pop on Paul Apostle of Christ, and you'll go to sleep before the first act ends. So yeah, overall, not as outwardly offensive as other Christian films, but it's too incompetent to be taken seriously by regular film watchers. Salutations, ladies and gentlemen. It's the Popcorn Junkie here for a little Netflix and chat. Alright. Been a while since we had a good Netflix and chat. Uh, haven't been re- I've been so busy with what's at the theater that I haven't really gotten the chance to see what's on TV. What's, what's, you know, what's on streaming. But I did get a chance to check out. To I was working my way back through Bob's Burgers, and I got through. Uh, I got through all of it. I'm all caught up. You know the the new episodes tonight as of this recording, and so I am fully caught up on Bob's Burgers. And so I wanted to give kind of my feedback on what I thought because I I liked the series before, but I I I feel like I missed a lot, especially since I moved because. I didn't have uh, live TV anymore, so I couldn't watch the new episodes as they were airing. So I, you know, I this is a way to, for me to re, go back and revisit it. It feels seeing the whole series play out over these eight seasons. It feels very Simpsons esque. You can see the the similarities to Simpsons and Family Guy in that it starts out kind of stiff, and it's all and most of the humor is in the writing. The humor stays mainly in the writing, but you can tell. As the seasons go on, especially within the last couple of seasons, there is way more motion and fluidity in the animation. It's way better. Um, heck, I even love the... Um, I, I, well, I guess, I guess I'll get into that in the, my favorite episodes. But uh, I wanted to... Yeah, I, I just wanted to cover my, my favorite stuff about Bob's Burgers upon revisiting it uh, on Hulu. Uh, so we'll, uh, we'll get, I'll get into some of my more... Uh, Fervent breakdowns later. Let's get into my favorite episodes. Um, My favorite. These aren't in any particular order. They're more in air airing order. They're in like the the. uh, They're not in my favorite. So these aren't my favorite in order of how much I love them. These are my favorite in the order in which they aired on TV. Um. So number one, uh, my first favorite episode of of the series was number season one episode six. Sheesh, cab Bob, um, and it's the one where Bob picks up a cab as a night gig in order to raise money for Tina to throw a party. And I like that one because it's a nice sort of way. It's it's kind of a way for them to differentiate themselves from the other shows around them, and it's a nice way to kind of introduce the sort of lip, you know the liberal nature of the show. Because that's the thing is that. This show is very open about sexuality and gender identity, and it's it's not like a prominent feature, but it'll it'll just be like this is the first time we got to meet uh, the the recurring character Marshmallow, and I won't speak to if if members of the LGBT community find Marshmallow offensive, 
feel free to call me out, but I do like Marshmallow as a character in the show because she's always displayed in a positive light, and she's and it's all it, even though it, 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 it her first introduction is played off as a sort of like ah ha ha that you know she's one of these transvestite uh, you know hookers that Bob picks up in his cab, but you see but the thi- but as you watch the show. And you see these characters recur, especially Marshmallow, recur and just be a friend to Bob and the Belchers. You, you know, like Louise is like, "Hey, what's up, Marshmallow?" And, or, or like Gina and Louis, Gina and uh, Tina are like, "Oh yeah, hey, Marshmallow, what's up?" And it's just like Marshmallow is a character that exists in in uh, the belt in in wherever the city Belchers live. Uh, something one something Wonder Wharf. So is it what Wonder something? Okay, so I didn't miss anything. Uh, it, they don't name the city where they live. It's Ocean Avenue is the street where they live, but it's it's an unnamed town. They surmise somewhere either on Long Island or the North Jersey Shore. It's somewhere in that part of the East Coast is where it's it's um, it's uh, it takes place for the most part. And uh, yeah, I just love that Marshmallow exists in that universe, and she's not like a. You know, she's not like a joke character. She's not like uh, something that everybody mocks. Oh, look, here comes Marshmallow. No, it's like, oh, hey, here comes Marshmallow. Marshmallow is just like, you know, a, a, a cool chica that comes hanging around the Belchers from time to time. And um, and I love and I love what she shows up. She's one of my favorite characters. And this is where we got introduced to her. So uh, next couple episodes later, uh, season one, episode eight, Art Crawl. Um, was I love it? I just love it because of the absurdity of it. It's uh, that's Art Crawl's the one where Gail, uh, Linda's sister, picks up it, it display wants to display her artwork throughout the restaurant, and it's all pictures of animal buttholes. And at first, Bob isn't into it, and Linda's like, "No, come on, we got to support her. She's my sister." And then, uh, then as soon as the neighboring uh, uh, crafts store people, I, I what are the characters' names? Edith and um, uh, Edith Cranwinkle and um, what's it? What's the husband? Harold. Edith and Harold Cranwinkle. I love these names so much. Um, as soon as Edith uh, and Harold uh, decry the artwork as 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 trash and that they need to be taken down, Bob's like, "No, you know what? I'm keeping these up." And Linda's like, "Oh no, we got to take these down." <laughs> Uh, God, it's, uh, it's awesome. I love, I love that episode. It's, it's, it's a nice introduction to the absurdity that is to come with the series. Uh, next up, my only favorite from season two was episode nine, Beef Squatch, which was the finale. And that was the one where Bob and Gene, uh, tip, uh, do the morning show segment for, um, I think it's, uh, Tom Lennon's character, uh. Thomas Lennon plays Chuck Charles and Pam is played by who was it? Uh, Samantha B. That's who it was. Um, so Chuck up, get on up with Chuck and Pam was their sort of local morning show. And Bob and Jean became sort of the, um, like they filmed a segment where uh, Bob is, uh, doing an actual cooking show style segment of uh, of saying, you know, here's how you do this, here's how you do this, and Jean's in the background with a Sasquatch uh, uh, costume mask, and 
uh, that he won off a kid at school, and he's like, "Give me the burger." Uh, it's actually the cl- they use a clip from that episode for the Hulu for the Hulu show, and when you're like Bob's Burgers, and it's a clip of Gene macking down on a burger for that they send it to uh, Chuck and Pam, and so. I just love that episode. Once again, the absurdity that ramps up as Bob and Gene become jealous of each other. Uh, well, not but jealous of each other. Bob becomes jealous of Gene, who becomes a glory hog and thinks he's the star of the show. And it's 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 a beautifully bizarre, and I love it. Uh, next up is the first episode, the premiere episode of season three. Uh, Year Z Rider. This is where you start to. This is where you not only see the the jump in quality; it starts to get better, but you also get to meet uh, Louise's longtime rival, long term rival Logan, who shows up later in the season and then will show up uh, periodically throughout the uh, series as sort of a, 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 a villain, an enemy for Louise. And we got to see Louise without her ears, sort of. You know she. She hit her head, but it's like Louise gets her ears taken away, and she wants vengeance. And it's and it's also where we got to meet a fun group of group of characters, uh, the One-Eyed Snakes, led by um, H. Ben Garant and uh, Wendy McClendon from Reno Nine One One. I love the I love the guest stars they'll get on these episodes, and I love the way Earsy Ryder played out. It's a uh, it's a nice, it's a nice like introduction of what of these characters that will will come back again in later seasons. Uh, Miller went from season three, episode six, the deepening, which was a full on Jaws parody, and I love some. I, I love when they go off on these weird parody things. You know, they're like, oh, what can, well, let's do a fun thing about this. So, like in the, in this episode, it's a Jaws parody, but instead of an actual shark, it's a fake animatronic shark. From a move from a from a Jaws ripoff that was filmed at this fictional at this fictional town called the Deepening, and apparently like Teddy, who gets is starting to become more prominent of a character by this point, is uh, has like a past with the with the movie, and it's like his you know like the movie is where he he saw his life spiral out of control. It's uh and it's and it plays out amazingly. I love the ending to this episode. Uh, number another the last one from season three episode sixteen Topsy, where we get the we had our introduction to the recurring librarian character Mr. Ambrose who's played by Billy Eichner and he's an amazing character that gets developed later on but here it's a great introduction where he's just like where he's just like doing these weird whispering things where it's like no no I'm not saying that yes I am I'm saying just that it's a great quirk and I love it about his character and it's Louise going full on like wanting wanting to get back at a, at a substitute teacher for making her, you know, not for making her do actual work on a science project. And, in, and so she uses that to, uh, she uses, um, the knowledge that Edison, even, you know, you know, the things that people don't really talk about. So this guy's a play is a Edison, uh, player. Like he plays Edison in a local museum or something. And and he's a reenactor, and he's so he's obsessed with Edison. He thinks Edison's just the best. And we get and so for people who aren't as familiar with it, we got our introduction to Topsy the Elephant, in which Edison straight up killed an alive elephant in order to prove that his in order to prove that uh, direct current was dangerous and that people should use alternating current, which was his patent. 
And uh, we gotta, we gotta. I'm wondering if they'll actually have the balls to show Topsy in that movie about Edison and um, Westinghouse that they're doing that's supposed to come out this year. Uh, we'll see. Like, I really hope so. And and you know, it's, and then it goes off, and it's this weird. Then it becomes a, um, a you know, that Gene turns it into a musical love story about how Top Edison loved Topsy, <laughs> and it's it's. I love it. I love everything about it. Um, next up, season four, episode seven, Bob and Deliver. This is the one where Bob becomes a substitute home ec teacher and he build and he, and he starts a restaurant within the school that's actually more successful than his own restaurant. Uh, but it's also a great episode for building Zeke's character. And this is kind of like, for the most part, by this point, Zeke was a background character. He was Jimmy Jr.'s best friend. He's the wrestler. He's kind of like, he seems to be kind of like a dunce and not a, you know, kind of like a jokey character. And you see a lot of that as it plays out, but this is where we start to see more to Zeke. And this is where we start to see a developing backstory for Zeke. You know, like he he's genuinely good at being, at cooking, at being a chef. He has a natural talent for it. And I feel like, and I feel like, that I, feel, I love the way they develop Zeke throughout the series because I because especially within the last couple of seasons they've really showed their hand on just how much of a twat Ju, uh, Jimmy Junior is. I mean he's just like his dad, honestly, and Tina deserves better. But uh, that, I'll get into that later. Um, another one from season four, episode eleven. One of my favorite episodes, probably my favorite episode of the se- of the series. Uh, the easy commercial, easy go commercial, and this is the one where uh, the Belchers make a Super Bowl commercial, and if, it, if they make a fun one that's silly and has uh, has um, Gene in the mustard in the mustard and the uh, in the costume in the burger costume peeing mustard on the people below, <laughs> it's it's so stupid and bizarre and quirky, and I love the commercial, but Bob. Bob and uh, Randy, the recurring character Randy, who uh, who was played, who's played by Paul F. Tompkins, and he started as a documentary filmmaker, saying Bob is a Bob is a monster for serving burger meat from cows, and uh, he'll reoccur throughout the series as sort of like a, a reluctant associate of Bob from then on. So like they'll recruit Randy to help them out, and so they do that for this by making him the director of the commercial. And unfortunately, Bob doesn't like it, so he hires a local football hero uh, who, in turn, goes around being in everybody's commercials for the Super Bowl. And Bob is completely left in the dirt and overshown by Jimmy Pesto uh, because the guy does it for because the guy because the football player does the same thing for Jimmy Pesto that he did for Bob. And Bob should have just stuck with the commercial that they made that his family loved. And, uh, yeah, and if not that, if that wasn't my favorite, the next one from season four is probably my other favorite, would be my favorite. It's, uh, episode 14, The Equestronauts. And this was, this has probably got the most notoriety for being the Brony episode. In that this is, this is the kind of like the first real pop culture take on Brony, on the Brony, on the Brony fandom. You know the, the 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 massive fan base of My Little Pony uh, fans, adult My Little Pony fans, May, mainly male, but not, but also like you know there's plenty of people across genders and genders in uh, the in the Brony fandom, 
And so it just be- it just became known as for that because of the overabundance of vocally male fans in the fandom that came from that new series. And the, this episode, like, whereas most uh, commentary on the bronies was, like, Fox News being like, look at the downfall of civilization. Look at these grown men enjoying this little girl show. What has become of us? What has become of our civilization? And here it's just like, no, here's a bunch of dudes. Tina's into a show, and it turns out, uh, the convention is mainly for adult men, and Tina's kind of weirded out. Like, okay, this is weird. This is kind of for me, guys. But at the same time, it's like, no, these guys, most of these guys are cool, except for the one asshole played by, I think, Paul F. Tompkins again. And it's, it's, and it's, and it, and it's Bob. And even through the course of the episode, Bob kind of, like, I would love a throwback to that where Bob makes a reference to uh, the Equestronauts, because I think that would be a great callback, because he kind of got into it for a bit. And, um, yeah, I think I think both either of those episodes from season four would be my overall favorite because it's because that's the thing it tackles bronies and that subculture with 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 enough respect to not outright call them weirdos or freaks or something like that. It's more like here are these guys; they like this thing; they're really into it, and so. And, and then it becomes more about Tina being swindled by one of these guys and Bob having to try and get that thing back for her, but get her toy back for her from this swindler. And it's, and I, I love it. I genuinely love that episode. Uh, season five, episode six, Father of the Bob. I love this mainly for the backstory. Uh, this is where we get to learn some history about Bob. This is where we get to see the origins. Uh, this is like Bob Belcher origins. You know, Bob's Burger origins. Bob Belcher. <laughs> um, we got to see where his where he made his first uh, sort of gimmicky burger. The baby, you can you can chive my car. I need to get that book. I'm gonna check my local bookstore and see if I can't grab that book. And next time I go shop, and like I'm gonna plan out. Recipes three times a week and do Bob do the Bob's Burgers challenge. Make every single one of those burgers, plan it out ahead of time, know which burgers I'm gonna make, probably gonna do it in order, and see how those burgers taste. Make my get some get myself some fries for the side and whatnot. I am I am into this. It'll help me become a better cook. And Bob Bob's burgers is gonna help me become a better cook. I love it. Anyway, um, I also love Father of the Bob because, once again, it showcases it's the show's openness towards, you know, L- the LGBT community. I don't think they fully uh, talked about, you know, uh, transitions or the trans, you know, members of, you know, trans people. But specifically, I mean, they've covered transvestites. So, and, they, and that's mainly, and at first it came off as kind of jokey, but the longer the series has gone on, the more they've showcased, like, no, these are just, these are just our neighbors. Hey, there's Marshmallow. What's up, Marshmallow? <laughs> Love Marshmallow. Um, but like his his dad runs a diner next to a long running gay cowboy bar. Open, you know, uh, and in that it's more it's more um, uh, male gay male homosexual than you know like um, like than uh, than just oh, you know, all an out gay or LGBT like so it's it's you know it's it. It's a it's a gay, it's a gay cowboy bar, and I think it's run by Sam Elliott, if I'm not mistaken. Am I right? 
No, it's um, run by... Um, he's voiced by freaking Nick Offerman. Uh, freaking what's his name from uh, Parks and Rec. Uh, oh, God, what's his name from Parks and Rec? Nick, o- Nick Offerman. Uh, like that's what threw me off though, because it kind of if his voice was a little deeper, it'd definitely be Sam Elliott. But um, Nick Offerman, uh, best known from, who's also married to fellow Bob's Burger guest voice actress uh, Megan Mullally. Uh, Nick Offerman, what was his character's name on Parks and Rec? It's his it's his breakout role. Um, ah, God, what is it? Uh, He's like the he's like the go-to manly character. Uh, what is it? What is it? Ron Swanson. Damn it! How can I forget that? Um, it's been a while since I watched uh, <laughs> Parks and Rec. But Nick Offerman plays the uh, the guy who uh, who runs the bar next to D- Bob's dad's diner, and like Bob's kind of thrown off. Like you come here, it's like and he's, and and Bob's dad's like well. Yeah, he's my customer. We we patron each other's businesses. We're friends, you know. And it's like, well, duh, Bob. Of course I come here. He's my friend. I support his bar. He supports my diner. <laughs> and it's just like there, out and out. You know, just like who cares? You know, it's this it's this gay cowboy bar. We come here. We come here. And we're not gay because we support our friends. Because we, we because we're good because we're good to each other. That's the kind of people we are. I love that aspect of that. It's probably it would probably be one of my top five favorite episodes for that reason. And once again, members of the LGBT community, if these episodes you know came off as offensive to you, call me out. Feel free to call me out on it. I have you know I would I would much rather hear from you than 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 to not you know. After that, uh, season five, episode thirteen. There's the one thing that uh, Bob's Burgers will do that I love is the anthology episodes, where they'll do like uh, like fan- wild fantasy stories that the kids will tell that uh, start to parody something else. And this was one, the second one. The first one was about Mister Frond, and this one is about their aunt Gail. And it's um, it's a uh, I think uh, uh, Pride and Prejudice parody. A Game of Thrones parody, and oh, what was the oh? It was some kind of I think it was a coal miner's daughter or something, some kind of musical, and uh, the, the kids are all trying to get a get, get Gales on their ticket to this concert, and then um, and so they uh, come up with the they all do these stories about Aunt Gale, and it's because she's pissed off at Linda, they make Linda the bad. Bad person and everyone, and then of course Scott Bakula is just there in the background. He's just thrown into the story because she's into Scott Bakula. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's a it's it's fun. It's a fun. I love when they do those. Another one's gonna pop it pop up in a bit. Um, this is definitely another top five for me. Season five, episode twenty, Hawk and Chick. This is a this is a great send up to old seventies Japanese movies like they. Th- Specifically, it's about Lone Wolf. It's a Lone Wolf and Cub parody, but it's a great send up of those that style and how silly it was. That's how silly it is. But Bob and Louise bond over it, and when they find the uh, star, the the uh, older star of those movies that they used to watch, uh, has come to their town to try and reconnect with his daughter after uh, screwing things up. It becomes. 
Bob and Louise bonding over trying to get the their two favorite actors from their favorite uh, movie series to reconnect. And, and like, there's a great line of, like, Louise uh, doing the dub, uh, doing the live dub of the... Um, of of the Japanese movie, uh, it br- literally breaks down in the middle of the live dub when Bob tries to get uh, the two actors to reconnect, and Louise is really is, is like freaking out, like trying to say like, no, the daughter's the one in the wrong because she left her dad who is awesome, and the and Bob has to be the one to be like, no, the dad dad the dad screwed up and he should have never have left his chick and like Louise gets all worried like is that gonna happen to us and Bob Bob hugs her and is like no I'm not you know I'm never gonna let that happen it's this really sweet moment between Bob and Louise and I absolutely love it and it's and it's a I love that episode specifically for that that ending it's it's such it's it really shows how good their storytelling can be another anthology the premiere for season six sliding bobs which is a throw takeoff of sliding doors which was a I, which i i never saw i never saw that anthology series i have to check it out but um it's them it's the kids uh picturing whether you know if bob what would happen if bob didn't have his mustache when he met linda because Melinda tells the story of how they met, and oh no, it's not a it's not a show; it's a movie, huh? Interesting. Um... No, what? What? That's, that's not even close. Here we go, sliding bobs. I'm trying to remember what all they were because I know Jeans was a RoboCop parody. Um... Let me see. Uh, here we go, Bob. Let's try the Bob's Burger wiki. Uh, Jeans was a was a RoboCop parody. Louise's uh, Linda uh, determined to win. Linda Bob tries to grow a mustache after family to do so. Bob. Oh, Linda. Uh, Louise's version is Bob becomes uh, uh, a freak of nature by having um, having hair all over his body and becomes a freak at Wonder Wharf. And then Linda becomes a nun and then goes to jail. Gets kicked out and then goes to jail. Uh, and then Tina's version is that um, Hugo would have been... Uh, Linda would have stayed married to Hugo, the recurring character played by Andy Kindler. Uh, and the Hugo would have run the restaurant as a hot dog restaurant. And then Bob would have become the, the Hugo of that universe. It's, it's a wild... Biz- I love the anthology ones. Those two... Specifically, the Gales, Tails, and Sliding Bobs are probably my favorites. Next up, another backstory one. This is where we get to meet uh, Chris Parnell uh, as Bob's uh, old-time friend from his childhood, uh, Pro Tiki Con Tiki. Uh, and this is where so we get to hear more about Bob and his backstory and get to meet more of his, of his friends from when he was a kid. And... Then also gets the test, Bob, on what he is willing to tolerate in order to succeed. How important is success to him compared to having integrity in what he does? You know, it's the you know, it's like it's the it's the it's ever the artist's struggle. What's more important, success or integrity? Do you want to do you want to scrape by but have your integrity, or do you want to succeed and give up but give up everything that you believe in? You know, and. I love the way it works. I really hope Chris Parnell returns as that character. I'd love to see 
of what they do with him in late and in, in, in future episodes. Uh, next one is from season seven, episode five, Larger Brother, Where Fart Thou? And this is this one I love kind of for the B story. The B story here is Linda and Bob meet their accountant, who I think is played by Tim, not Tim Meadows. Tim Meadows is the mailman. Um, yeah, let me go by season seven. Large brother, where fart thou? The main story is Louise and Jean are are bonding over uh, being chased by Logan, and so and uh, and so Jean is left in charge of Louise, and then Louise gets them in trouble by uh, pick, by throwing out uh, a, a nasty mel- a nasty melon, and then pissing off Logan, and so Jean gets to be the big brother for Louise. That and gain, gain her respect, and then meanwhile, Bob and Linda are over with their accountant, who is played by Eric Griffin. Who? Where do I know him from? I know this guy. Who is this guy? Eric Griffin is Mike and Dave need wedding dates. Um, workaholics. He's Montez Walker from Workaholics, and. He plays the their uh, their uh, accountant who th- he, who likes to tell funny jokes, and then um, they all get high <laughs> from uh, one of the accountants uh, from uh, Gerald's other accountant, uh, one of his other clients, who actually gave him a whole bunch of pot brownies, and so them freaking out while they're high in his office is the best thing ever. I think that's what ma- that's one of the few times where the B story gets me more than the A story. And it works so perfectly, and I love it. And, uh, and yeah, it's, and then, of course, the A story is solid, too, with uh, Gene and Louise bonding over, uh, this bull, over this bully Logan. But, you know, Gene gets to stand up for Louise and whatnot. Uh, another one's from Season 7. A bunch from Season 7, actually. The Season 7 is where I have the most favorites from. Uh, Aquaticism. Which is uh, this? I, I just love it for how bizarre it is. You know, in order to save their favorite aquarium, the kids trick the um, trick the the head of the aquarium to declare the aquarium a place of worship for the IRS, so they no longer have to pay taxes. And so it's them making up this fake religion. Religion. And in the meantime, it ultimately actually convinces the IRS agent investigating them to join their fake religion. It's a bizarre, just ever, ever escalating turn of events. And it's all, and it's crazy, and I love it. Uh, another one from Season 7, The Laserinth, which is... Uh, the two stories are Bob and Gene go to a laser rock show where Bob and Gene bond over this old song, over this old album that Bob grew up loving, and he loved the laser light show. And um, meanwhile, Linda, Tina, and Louise go with Linda's friend Gretchen to this doll restaurant where you're accompanied by dolls, and Louise ult- act- a- 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 becomes attached to one of the dolls there at the table. And wants to rescue it when it when she learns it's going to be trashed, and it's a really touching story, especially uh, the the final twist at the end with that storyline because they reveal throughout that throughout the episode that Tina has a weird like phobia when it comes to these dolls, like they really freak her out. Um, 
Uh, next one, last one for season seven, uh, episode 20, Mom Lies in Videotape. It's another anthology. This one I like a little bit less than uh, Sliding Bob's, but I like it a little bit more than uh, the one from Mr. Fraun. The one from Mr. Fraun was a nice experiment. I think they re- just got, I think they mostly got better after that. I think Gale Tales is still the best one, though. But this one is the one where uh, they, there's like a tribute to Mom's held at Wagstaff, and uh, Bob accidentally Linda's sick so Bob says he'll record it he screws up and he doesn't record it so the kids recount their different versions of uh, what actually what happened even though it's all BS but uh, Linda loves it anyway so like the town with no moms is an old is an old spaghetti western which is uh, Louise's thing uh, eternally maternal is uh, this weird sort of psychedelic mythology and it's like, uh, Jean is this ancient mystical deity who wants to create moms. And then uh, Tina does the retelling of both. Uh, uh, does a uh, does a pasty, does like a mashup of aliens and Freaky Friday, where Tina is the is Ripley and then becomes the the queen the queen xenomorph. And it's all and it's it, it starts out as aliens and then it autom- and then it turns into Freaky Friday. <laughs> And it's 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 uh, it's wonderfully bizarre. So yeah, I love and, and, and so yeah, I like aside from the Mister Frond one, I like all of the um, anthology episodes. I love when they do that. I don't think they've done it this season yet. But uh, my favorite episode from season eight is its premiere, Brunch Squatch, and in that um, they plant they they reached out to the fans of Bob's Burgers, the animators. And they asked for, t- and they collaborated on a fan animated episode that aired on Fo- that aired on Fox. So these animators got to be featured on their own Bob's Burger episode, and it's all about how um, they open up, they try to open up, open up, open up for brunch to make start make bringing in some more money, and it descends into utter chaos because they don't know what they're doing. And it's a nice introduction to a to a character. Um, what's, uh, what's, what's the guy's name? Uh, ah, uh, God, what, come on, give me, uh, it won't list the, um, it won't list the guys. They have to have a thing for him, right? It's a, it's a Wikia page. Of course they'd have to have a thing. For, they just call him the, okay, hold on. Who's the guy? Let's go to the IMDb. Look up who the guest voices are. Gene, Louise, Mr. Fish Odor. I also love Kevin Klein as Mr. Fish Odor. Um, Jennifer, other Jennifer, Greg, Dalton. Dalton Crespin, played by John Early, is like is the blogger's name. John Early, who uh, who recently was just in The Disaster Artist, uh, but is mainly in a, but has been ma- mainly in indie films. Uh let me look. Let me go back to the Wikia and then look up. Don't know why it's not tagged there. Dalton Crespin, a blogger who writes a blog called Brunch Drunk Love under the name Dame Judy Brunch, <laughs> and uh, I like this guy. Uh, he does return in the Bleakening when he where he attends uh, Linda's uh, Christmas party. I like that. I did like that uh, Christmas double. That Christmas. Uh, two-parter it was fun um so yeah i hope he becomes a recurring character i do like him a lot uh 
Dalton has ha- had a Dalton had a boyfriend whom he broke up with prior to the bleakening, who is now boyfriends with another one of his ex-boyfriends. Oh man, that sucks. So and then here we go once again. Uh, even though he's kind of he's he does have that sort of effeminate voice in his portrayal. At the same time, I, I feel like we need to get to know Dalton the same way we've come to uh, recognize Marshmallow as the series has gone on. So I hope he becomes a nice recurring character uh, in future episodes. Uh, yeah, those are my favorites so far. Um, oh, I did like the uh, Valentina episode, the recent Valentine's Day episode, where they go, <laughs> where um, Jillian Bell from Workaholics is, their, is the limo driver for the girls who go off on a Valentine's Day girl date. And, ulti- and then it turned into a thing of revenge where Tina gets revenge on Jimmy Jr. for not asking her out and going out with this other girl instead. And then, uh, oh, or, uh, oh, and Bob and Jean meet up with, uh, meet up with these two, uh, type, with these two, uh, like traveling, um, trapeze, uh, uh, purveyors where it's like, you can learn to trapeze in just one day. And it's, um, oh God, who, who? Let me pull up that episode. Valen, Valentina. Ah, come on. What the hell? Okay. Let's go to the... Let's go to the IMDb. Valentina. <laughs> Ah, crap, I don't remember it. Hold on, Bob, let's just go Bob's Burgers, season eight. Yeah, and then the commercial is also featured in the trailer, the the scene of Gene in the tiny city as the giant burger, uh, kaiju. Um, what is it? V for Valentine Detta. That's it. Um, and then who are the two guys? It's Wyatt Cenac and Ron Funches. I love the guest stars they get to come in. I love it. And and so, um, that's, that's probably my favorite Valentine's Day episode that they've done so far. Uh, but I don't know if I'd put it on my favorite of all time. But yeah, it's... this. I love this series. I have really fallen back in love with this series upon revisiting it. As far as favorite seasons would go, I would say either four or five overall as a season, I think, are the, the are probably the peak so far. Even though most of my favorite episodes are from 7, I can kind of tell Season 7 is not pumping on all cylinders. Season 8 is doing good so far. I mean, they came off on a great, um, on a great, at a great start with that fan-animated episode. I hope they do more stuff like that. Um, but, yeah, and, and, you know, there's some fun stuff here and there. But at the same time, I feel like overall, like, as far as episodes go at an average, I feel like 4 and 5 are where they peaked. And I just hope they don't... They don't uh, overstay their welcome the way the Simpsons and Family Guy have. And I feel like the creators wouldn't do that. I would hope the creators would be like, no, we see what you're doing with the other shows, Fox. We're not going to become a part of the problem. Uh, but yeah, and then, of course, my favorite characters overall, Louise. Love Louise. I think she's the best. Uh, I've grown to love Tina a lot. I think Tina, I, 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 I identify a lot with Tina. And that's why I'm pulling... For I'm I'm a full on, uh, what would you call it? Zena, uh, Teak, uh, Tina Zeke is my is my uh, is my ship. That is my ship. Tina and Zeke. I know she's not into him, 
But Zeke, like Zeke has made hints at it. Zeke has made hints that he's going to win Tina's affection, that he's kind of got uh, some attraction for her. And he'll still come along on their crazy adventures. And he calls out J- J- uh, Jimmy Pesto Jr. for uh, leaving Tina behind, you know, for leaving Tina in the dirt. You know, Zeke cares about Tina more than Jimmy Jr. And that's why I'm pulling either uh, Tina Zeke or Tina. What's the other guy's name? Uh, the other dancer that uh, I think it's season three was when he showed up. Hold on. That's the one with the love triangle. Uh, no, no, no. Nude beat. My fuzzy Valentine. Independent Woman, OT, Topsy, two for Tina. Uh, season three, yeah. Uh, earlier that season, Tina met, I think, Josh. Yeah, Josh. So either Josh, the dancer from the from the from the school of art, from the uh, you know from the da- from the school of the arts, or I'm pulling. I'm kind of pulling for Zeke. I'm really pulling for Zeke because I feel like Zeke has shown he cares about Tina. But jo- so does so has Josh. So I could see her making amends with Josh and dating him. Those are my two Tina ships for those who cared. And then uh, Linda, absolutely adore Linda. I love, I just how bombastic she is. Even though she's not, she's not perfect. Obviously, she's she's got, she and Bob have these odd quirks that, that are shown throughout the series. But I love. I just love her energy, you know, whereas Bob is definitely the sort of humdrum straight edge kind of guy. Although we do get to see him be weird and talk with the inanimate objects like he's a little kid. Like he's never grown out of that. I do love that about him. But I, I just love Linda. I love how kooky she is and how like how quirky she is. I would love, uh, I, would, I don't know how much I would love a, a significant other like Linda. But I could, yeah, but I, that's like, that I could, that I could see myself being, like, Linda's the kind of woman, well, Mark, like, compared to the other two long-term mom wives in uh, the Fox animation category, uh, Marge is kind of complacent. Like, even though they've shown how, like, loving and caring Marge is, I, I, Marge is kind of, she very, she easily slips under the radar for the most part, like, Especially by this point, nobody's really thinking about Marge Simpson as much. Uh, they've completely ruined all of the characters, and that goes for Lois Griffin. Like they've made her into uh, like a nymphomaniac, and they've shut and say shamed her for it. They've said so they you know the, the the show loves slut shaming Lois for no reason. So th- I, I that's and they've kind of ruined that character for most of us. So by comparison, you know so. Linda, even though she's kind of manic and kind, you know, kind, you know, definitely kind of out there for, for you know, sometimes L- Linda out of the three is the one I would definitely see myself in a long term, lasting the longest in a relationship with. Because it definitely wouldn't be boring. And it, and it, I could see, and it, there's a lot of passion and love in that relationship. I can see it. And then lastly, I, over the course of the eight seasons, I have grown in love with Teddy. I adore teddy he is so he is just so bizarre and he, he's become like this secondary family member to the belchers and i love his dynamic with them i love how bob is very reluctant at first to be like no teddy is my customer he's not my friend you know and i th- was that before or is that the same was it the same season that he uh saw his dad that he that we saw with his dad um 
Uh, work hard, die trying, girl. Teen in the real goes dawn of the pack. So before he meet, goes back to meet with his dad, he gets into a whole thing with Teddy about whether or not they're friends. And then after he goes to meet with his dad and he sees how much his dad is friends with his customers, I think after that, Bob becomes much more open to the idea of being friends with Teddy. I don't know if they intended that, but I feel like that's a great, um, great sort of comparison of like, once he got to see, once he saw that his dad is really good friends with his customers and they're good friends and their neighbors, he's like, why, why don't I be friends with Teddy? I mean, yeah, I mean, Teddy's not, Teddy's kind of weird and quirky and kind of off-putting, but at the same time, like, really? Why, why not be friends with him, you know? And I feel, and so I've come to love Teddy. Oddly enough, Bob is not my favorite character in this. I kind of identify with Bob a lot, but he's not my favorite. Kind of like with Tina. But I don't... He's not my favorite character on the show. I think, ultimately, Louise is my favorite character overall. I love the manic um, insanity that comes from Louise. And uh, Jane is kind of my least favorite of the Belchers, only because I love Louise and Linda the most. Then it's Tina, then Bob, then Gene. And once again, I love Eugene. I also I love Eugene Merman. I love that he's gotten this gotten this notoriety for playing this character, and he's great at it. But yeah, I think I think uh, Gene is a little too ADD for me. You know, I feel like I definitely feel that that's a thing. And but I like Gene. But at the same time, I don't hate Gene either. Like I don't think I hate anybody on the show unless we're supposed to hate them, like Hugo or Jimmy Pesto. And uh, I also I also enjoy uh, Kevin Klein. I like that he is willing to show up as this eccentric billionaire who runs the whole town, and how he ultimately become he also ultimately builds up this friendship with Bob reluctantly. And it's this I, I love that all the friendships are weird and they don't make any damn sense, but they still work. And I love that about it. I love the insanity of it all. So yeah. Bob's Burgers. I'll have to. I, I'll probably go back and rewatch it again at some point, just because I have fallen back in love with this series, and I just hope it doesn't overstay its welcome. Kind of like how the other long, long stay, long term animated shows have. Simpsons has, Family Guy has, South Park kind of has. It. And they just. I just hope Bob's Belchers never reaches a point where it's like, man, Bob's Bel- Bob's Burgers is still on the air. I think I called it Bob's Belchers. <laughs> Uh, I hope Bob's Burgers never reaches a point where people are sick of it being on the air. Kind of like how Spongebob is as well. Although I hear they're finally ending that. Which is fine. It's reached syndication. You don't need to make new episodes. You've got the old ones. So why stay longer than you need to? I think once you reach syndication, uh, you can last as long as you feel comfortable making content. But know your end game. Have your end game in mind. And when you're getting tired, start going for that end game. You know? That's that's the main thing. So yeah, uh, that's that's pretty much the main thing I watched this week. And uh, let's like to look ahead to next weekend. This Easter weekend, we've got the big, highly anticipated movie by pretty much everyone else. Uh, I'm not into it because I know a lot. I've come. The more I've learned about the book, the less into the movie I've become. But we'll have to wait and see. And that is. Ready Player One. And before we get into that trailer, we've also got the latest from Tyler Perry. So we got two Christplotations, most likely, because Tyler Perry loves going to church. And uh, so we got Tyler Perry, 
with with his nonsense with uh, Taraji P Henson of all people in uh, Acrimony, and then of course God's Not Dead Three: A Light in the Darkness. So we'll take a look at those. Let's take a look at the final trailer for Ready Player One. This is the Oasis. God, Todd is right. It's a place where the limits of reality are your own imagination. These... From director Steven Spielberg. But yeah, Todd... Todd is always commenting on how uh, these slowed-down versions of songs or trailers are just the dumbest thing ever, and they're so entertaining. And yeah, here we got... Here we got the freaking song from... But I found something much uh, bigger than myself. From, um... I found my friends. Ah, uh, what is it? Ah, uh, uh, what is it? Uh, Willy Wonka trying to sell this movie. Now, to hit home the nostalgia factor. No, 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 This is war. We're in control of the future. Find him. Welcome to the rebellion, Wade. Anyone who you are, you can't use your real name. Hold on to something. This isn't just a game. I'm talking about actual life and death stuff. What's going on? You're practicing my Mario Kart. Come on! She practicing my Mario Kart. Comes in adventure. Too big for the real world. I need to pick better, uh, better uh, trailer channels on YouTube because some of these guys will just cram all the trailers into one video, and then uh, I had this problem with Red Sparrow too. Um, this one cuts into the next trailer. It's not a final trailer. It, it's just a final trailer if you've just crammed all the other trailers into one video, jerk. So yeah, um, the more I hear about the like that, like people also dug up the writers uh like slash fic, and it's. Some horrendous, unreadable garbage. And yeah, uh, if anyone's going to make that good, it's either, uh, it's probably going to be Spielberg. But if it sucks, there's nothing much Spielberg could have done with this material from what I've heard. So we'll have to wait and see. Next up, the aforementioned Acrimony. You don't know what he did to me. You don't know. Oh God, <laughs> freaking Moonlight Sonata. That's what he said. He loves you me. You know the last thing a woman wants to hear about her man is that he's cheating on her. He loves me not. It's mad. She's a stereotype. Sick and tired of hearing that. On March 30th. You still messing around with her? I'm Diana. Robert's fiance. Acrimony. He did mean what he said. Maybe the deceit isn't what you think. Oh no, I don't think so. One, bitterness. Two, anger. Three, malice. I would save my prayers for the wedding day. Acrimony. Yeah, this is... This is gonna be some... Like... 
Here's what I hope. I hope this turns into Taraji P. Henson becoming a supervillain, because that would be the only thing going for this movie. Otherwise, it just looks like utter and complete trash. You know, the same kind of trash Tyler Perry's always been peddling. So we'll have to wait and see. That's going to be coming out this weekend. Uh, Next up, and lastly, we've got God's Not Dead, A Light in the Darkness. We are watching more and more protests from around. Everybody's yelling? Nobody's in this? battle rages on and hope Jesus strength. Christ is the one truth. This guy is a pastor who was jailed for his beliefs. Oh, God. God. Oh, God. Is God dead? I'm so tired of all the noise. I'd never even considered that God could be dead. We question his existence. Why the church? It's because the whole world knows what the church is against, but it's getting harder and harder to know what it's for. We have lost our faith. Tired of turning the other cheek. We cannot respond to hate with more hate. When the whole world is watching. In fact, the way we act, then how do we actually know that our beliefs are any more valid than anyone else's? How will we respond? That there's a gun. People are lost. They're broken. And they're searching. Science has replaced superstition. Church has outlived its usefulness. On March 30th. I don't hear you anymore. Are you even there? I feel so lost, God. Let's show the world who we are. Without grace is our goal. We're just, you know, we're just fighting. Pureflix presents God's Not Dead, A Light in the Darkness. In the darkness. Eat me! Eat my whole asshole, Pureflix. Oh, bite down hard. Oh, just utter garbage. You can hear it. You can hear the contempt in this movie. Because that's the thing. Pure Flix has never, ever been able to write not anyone other than Christians well. They've never been able to do it. Because they have no idea how other people besides themselves think. And this is going to be complete and utter trash. And I wish I could go to... A screening of this with nothing but atheists. So we could just mock it incessantly. It could become a Rocky Horror style. Just throwing crap at the screen. You know, it's, it. who cares? Because this is garbage. Uh, just can't wait to tear it apart. Because all of these have been garbage. And this looks like even worse. Can't wait. Um, so... That about does it for this week. So, that means it is time for the plugs. If you are listening to this podcast, you are most likely listening to us through our homepage at GumbyCatNetworks.com. And if you want to keep up to date on all the episodes as they come out, you can favorite that page to your to your to your favorites through your mobile browser or you can find us through your podcasting service. We are now located we are now hosted by Libsyn. So you so as long as you see over a hundred episodes through your podcasting service, that means we're going. You're getting the Libsyn feed, which means you're getting the most up to date feed for the podcast. And if not, 
Be sure to let me know, and I can fix and I and I can work on fixing that. And while you're there, uh, whatever podcasting app you use, whatever service you use, be sure to leave a five star rating review and to share the uh, share the podcast with your friends to let them know, hey, you like this thing, and you can share us through your various social media. Uh, Popcorn Junkie is on Facebook at facebook.com slash Popcorn Junkie. That's where all the big announcements come from. That's where I, that's where a lot of the information about the podcast comes from. And uh, that's where the main stuff to share is posted. But if you, but you can also follow me on Twitter at Corn Junkie Pod. There I'll be, um, you know, that's where you also get the Facebook feed. Plus some side features like the, like the Munch Along segment that I do when I'm watching a movie or the uh, trailer talk segment that I do before a new release. And, you know, that's where I'm also commenting back and forth with other um, film enthusiasts and reviewers and whatnot. So if you want to follow me there, that's where I'm most active. That's on Twitter, at CornJunkiePod. And if you want to follow me on Instagram, I've started doing more with Instagram. So I've got, uh, I've started posting uh, the Stardust reactions through there. That is on so you can follow me on Instagram at Popcorn Junkie Podcast. I'm still trying to figure out more to do with the Instagram, so it's more active there. But it's becoming a lot more active thanks to the introduction, the the extra introduction of the Stardust app. And speaking of which, you can follow me on Stardust at Popcorn Junkie, and there you can find all of my my initial reactions to trailers, to to the films I'm watching for the week for the episodes, and you can. So if you want to hear my thoughts on stuff early on, follow me on Stardust at Popcorn Junkie. You can also follow fellow uh, reviewers like the Double Toasted Crew. Jeremy Johns is on there. The Schmoes No Guys are on there. And you can fo- find some new f- faces. You know, you can find some new people to follow there. The Regal Cinemas, the actual company, has its own Stardust app. Think about that. So, I mean, you can, there, you know, this thing is starting to gain some heat, and I hope you join me there. Uh, you can also follow me... On Twitch, I haven't been streaming lately because uh, I've having I've had to focus on some more important things, and so I haven't been streaming as much as I would like. I'm hoping to get back to that soon. But if you want to follow me on Twitch.tv slash Popcorn Junkie plays with himself, uh, which is initialized PWH, so Popcorn Junkie PWH, you can join me as I play various video games and whatnot. Uh, I'm hoping to return to that soon, uh, maybe. I may do a truncated one next weekend because I need to uh, have my... I need to get a film in for... Um, oh, no, I can... No, there's only three, so I can... I should be able to get it. But, I, but I'll, keep you, I'll keep people up to date on whether or not there's a stream this weekend. So follow the Facebook page if you want to know about whether or not there's a stream on Twitch. And if there's anything else you want to say about to the podcast, any kind of feedback you want to give, any kind of corrections that I need to make, any kind of stories you want to share, any, do you want to share your thoughts with me? Then you can you can do so. If you want to share your thoughts on the next move on the, on what I'm reviewing, you can you can share you can send your thoughts and or if you have a, if, if if you have your own thoughts on what I've already reviewed. Say you want you want to share your thoughts about uh, Pacific Rim Uprising uh, after the, after this episode, or the original Pacific Rim, or you want to share your thoughts on some of the stuff I talked about in my 100 favorite movies episode. You know, uh, if there's if something I've talked about 
has uh, has given you thoughts and opinions that you want to share with the podcast, I will be happy to communicate with you, and I would be happy to share your thoughts as well. I would be glad to designate a segment for the listeners to uh, give their own feedback. Uh, probably call it the comment section or something. Uh, but yeah, if you're interested, send all of that to popcornjunkiepodcast at gmail.com. That does it for this week's episode. Until next time, I'm John Bailey, and if you'll excuse me, I got a Weird Al concert to go to. The theme song for Popcorn Junkie is Funky Popcorn by The M. Look up Funky Popcorn by the letter M on SoundCloud for more of their music. Artwork provided by Nafio, N-A-F-Y-O. Look up nafio.deviantart.com for more of his artwork. How he suffered. Oh, yeah. Look at how much our Savior suffered for our sins. Look at the pain he's going through. Isn't it the worst? Oh, yeah. Feel that salvation. Um, yeah. Uh, I don't know how well that's going to go down in the final episode. <laughs> um, where are the... Belchers live. Here, Bob Burgers Wikia, um, miscellaneous. Uh, what is the town where they live? Sorry, that was uh, my phone. Cut all this out. <laughs>